trying to get the speaker panel lined up here. Um, really excited about this space because I want to keep it super informative. Um, a lot of actionable stuff for you guys to take in and actually, you know, understand and, and use as we go forward through this mess. Hey, name redacted co-host man. How do I refer to you? I feel weird saying name. What do I say? <laughs> you could just say name. That's name. good. So weird. Or... We are uh, joined <laughs> by uh, Steve Friend and also um, we have Kyle Serafin joining us tonight. Both of them absolutely phenomenal, brave whistleblowers from the FBI. Um, we also will have a couple more folks popping in. Um, I think who else is coming? Uh, name. We have a couple more. I'm All right, them. good. So you, you'll do that for, for us then. Okay, yes. perfect. Um, Hey, Hey name. I'm going to hit you up in some DMS. I'm giving you a, uh, a couple of folks that I'm trying to get on here. I've got a former federal prosecutor and a former NSA retired FBI guy for us. Sounds good. So what I wanted to do tonight is really go over this Missouri v. Biden case and explain the story of it again so that everybody knows where we're at and then go over the discovery that was released yesterday. And actually, Steve is in in the in the lawsuit discovery, right, Steve? Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm in paragraph 393, 394. It actually pertains to my wife being uh, her Facebook account being shut down uh, after she uh, she sent a private message about uh, me to somebody. Yeah, insane. Um, which is crazy, and and we'll get into that story too if 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 you're if you're down for that because that's something else. Um, you know, usually, and I keep saying this, I've been on a couple of different spaces, but we're getting all kinds of disclosure, right? And, and usually like the way this stuff happens is we get, you know, some kind of disclosure of something and then we have to wait for a committee and then we have to wait for that to finish usually with a bunch of like sternly worded letters and then no action. And then maybe somebody picks up a lawsuit on it and it's not usually um, a state or multiple states. Um, and there are individual plaintiffs on this lawsuit also, but it's not typically like a state that's, but we have this lawsuit first and then the real disclosure. And it's been like this amazing peppering of information since. And I, I guess I'll take the floor for just a minute or two and it's, well, might be a little longer than that, but I'll explain what happened with this case so that we're all up to speed on where we are today. And then you guys share this out if you find this valuable so that your friends can hop in and hear um, what's going on with the conversation. And then name, I know you have done a lot of kind of cross-pollinated work on this stuff um, based on the Twitter files and some other stuff. So you can you can pop in and, and share that information with everyone and we can start to get a real round picture of what's going on. Um, Kyle, you have a bunch of expertise on this stuff too. So whenever you feel like jumping in, be, feel free. It's open, interrupt me if you want, poke me, I don't care. I, I just want to get out the history and then Move on. Is everybody down with that? That works. Good. All right. Hundreds. Yeah. We got thumbs up. We're good. Okay. So this case was filed last, I believe it was April. And it was basically the states of Louisiana and Missouri and uh, like Jim Hoff from the Gateway Pundit and Dr. Cariardi and uh, uh, folks that started the Great Barrington Declaration and, uh, you know, a number of other individual plaintiffs that I believe 
some were added on on the First Amendment amended complaint that came later. But what happened was the federal the federal government was accused of working with social media companies to censor American speech. And the complaint, the first complaint was pretty detailed as to why. And the plaintiffs, the states and the individual plaintiffs asked the federal, asked the judge to order expedited discovery and expedited depositions so that he could rule on a temporary injunction um, to stop the government from doing any communications with, with, you know, any social media company while they waited for the actual trial to move on. So what we're looking at right now is the expedited discovery has been ongoing because the judge granted that. And there, the judge right now has a, a motion in front of him to dismiss from the government, obviously. And the plaintiffs have filed their answer to that motion. And now the defendants get another opportunity to answer what the plaintiffs said. And then the judge will rule on the motion to dismiss. But the problem for the government is that the judge has basically already ruled on their arguments in their motion to dismiss and ruled against them when he allowed the temporary, um, I'm sorry, the expedited discovery and deposition in the case. So it's been a little bit of a whirlwind getting here. Um, <laughs> they, this judge in Louisiana has allowed basically everything that the plaintiffs has asked for because there have been exceptional circumstances surrounding the information that's been provided. You know, some of the stuff in the complaint was, you know, how Jen Saki stood up there on the podium and said how she was working with social media companies and how dare they not censor the disinformation dozen and if the disinformation dozen isn't, uh, is censored on, on Facebook, they should also be censored on YouTube and, and, and Twitter and, and Instagram and everywhere else. And, you know, basically this lawsuit encompasses not just COVID-19 censorship, although that is a big part of it. It's the Hunter Biden laptop story, election integrity. It's basically every issue of consequence that we've had in, in this country and, and the world over the past, you know, year or two. And it, it really started picking up steam when CISA um, began their antics. And one of the things that's been uncovered in this discovery and pretrial sort of stuff is that CISA declared your thoughts, the things that you think and write online as part of their cognitive infrastructure, giving them by their own dec decree the ability to, you know, legis not legislate, but control those things. They're under their infrastructure purview. Go ahead, Kyle. You wanted to say something? I accidentally hit the mic, but yeah, so it's worth people knowing that the, the whole concept of mission creep here, which, um, you know, we did a podcast about and the, the, the concept is very familiar to people in law enforcement and military, that when you're given a mandate as a government agency, it's very natural that they start looking for more things to do because they often run out of work quite quickly and they're always trying to grow staff, they're trying to grow budgets, they're trying to grow these little private kingdoms or fiefdoms that they're running. So the idea that they would expand into your thoughts is basically an unlimited mandate for them to be able to request funding and be able to do actions, which uh, justifies and validates their existence. So it's, it's incredibly important. I think it's worth saying it again and kind of, you know, stomp the, the, the foot like you're giving the answer away in the test. Like this is such a big deal that they said these words. It is. They're literally using your thoughts and declaring them a part of the government's infrastructure. And so once they did that, it, it opened up their their mandate, so to speak, into every you know possible area you could you could imagine. Um, agent Chan, the infamous now Agent Chan, FBI special agent out of 
uh, California, who isn't really, who isn't even really a high level dude. Like Steven and Kyle can, can jump in on this. I was stunned at his position and the power that he had given his position. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, I think he was an ASAC, right, Kyle? Yeah, he's a GS15. He's an ASAC. Um, th- that being said, like some ASACs have an incredible amount of access to big programs. And I'm just finding out, um, we did an interview with George Hill, which is in your newsletter, Tracy. Yep. Um, he was just telling me today that Timothy Tebalt, who is another one of these ASAC level guys, a GS15. So still on the government pay scale. They're not in the SES ranks yet. Um, that he was giving out these like massive phone calls that would have thousands of people on them with every JTTF all the way down to the patrol officers nationwide spewing out all of his, you know, anti-Trump hatred. And he would just go in these diatribes. So some of these people have a really big um, microphone and even like program within the FBI that outsizes what I would say their pay grade generally is. So some of them are punching way above their weight. And Elvis Chan was clearly one of those guys because he managed to hitch his wagons up and his career up to this social media, this, you know, his social media um, program and, and liaison. Yeah, and, and, you know, he came – sorry, Steve, did I step on you? Yeah, I was just saying there, there, there's just a tremendous incentive for them because they're, they're right at the cusp of getting to that SES level. So in my experience, I, I was in two different divisions, and the, uh, the ASACs are basically the lieutenants for the special agent in charge, and they have purview over an entire program. So, you know, in, in uh, my first field office, there was two of them. One oversaw everything criminal and everything national security. And then in my second office, it was everything criminal, everything national security. And then the third one was all the uh, the satellite offices. So, you know, again, they're not SES, but they have tremendous purview. They want to make that next step. They want to get back to headquarters to get their, their next job so that they can eventually take over a field office. So that was Chan's kind of, I would assume, his, his goal, um, among other things, I'm sure, because you know, he, he's been deposed in this lawsuit and the story of how he was deposed and found at all is really interesting. It was before the Twitter files came out and we learned about him through there. They had deposed him before that, which I think is so crucial because these guys like Fauci, for example, was deposed at a time where we didn't know that Twitter was going to be dumping all this stuff. So the way that Chan was found was through Meta, through Facebook, because if you remember, Joe, uh, Joe Rogan had, um, what's his name? What's his name? I, um, Zuckerberg on and was interviewing him and he gave it away that, you know, the guy that came to them that the, the Hunter laptop was quote Russian disinformation. And, and he didn't tell them the Russian laptop was Russian disinformation. He warned them that disinformation would be incoming, something that's been far, far and above debunked now. And that, you know, they should be on the lookout for it. And then, Counsel for the plaintiffs was going back and forth with counsel for Facebook, and they gave the name verbally in a uh, discussion. And then they were like, well, we need this guy then. We need to talk to him. And then the government fought it tooth and nail to try and stop Chan from being deposed, but they weren't successful and he was deposed. And now we get to see where perjury lies, if any, and what they, you know, what their answers in these depositions actually line up with in reality, because there's a ton of discovery coming in in this case, even through a pending motion to dismiss. And there have been a ton of, you know, shenanigans with it, right? Without getting into like in the weed stuff. Jen Psaki, for example, when they first brought the lawsuit, she was still press secretary. So she was a party to the lawsuit because she was still press secretary. When she left, she wasn't being sued anymore because she was no longer in her um, official capacity. So they were looking for records and information surrounding her statements from the podium in that meeting I talked about. And the government was saying to them, we don't have anything like that. 
we have no idea why she said those things. There's nothing that we can give to you that's responsive. There's nothing available. And then the, the, um, the plaintiffs, the states said, well, then we need her because if you guys don't have anything that is responsive to what we're looking for, and she's the only one who knows why she said that on, on, you know, on the dais, then, or dais, however you say it, then we need her. And they subpoenaed her as a non-party. And that's when all hell broke loose, right? So she is, um, she is in Virginia in like a DC court in Virginia, like right on the outskirts of DC. And she has, um, I'm sure a name you can chime in here. She has Jeannie Ree as her counsel. Um, you want to tell anyone who Jeannie Ree is? I'm sure you, you know. If you don't, I don't want to put you on the spot. Uh, <clears throat> Jeannie Ree, wasn't she one of the uh, prosecutors for uh, Mueller, right? Indeed. Yes, she was. Yeah. And she was like an Obama fixer. Like she was high up there at DOJ. Wasn't she associate uh, deputy attorney general or some kind of weird? I don't remember exactly, but she was really high up there. Um, and so she's, she's Jen Psaki's attorney and they're in front of this judge in, in Virginia and they, they attached this transcript to, um, a, a motion in the actual Louisiana case where if you read through it, I actually read the entire thing out because it was so stunning. This, this Virginia judge wasn't having it. So like Jen Psaki's attorneys were saying, well, she doesn't have the time to prepare for this. It would take her away from her family. Plus if you depose her, then it'll be a chilling effect on all future government employees because they'll feel like whatever they say, they can be deposed. And the judge was like, and then they said, oh, but and she doesn't have any information. And the judge said, literally, well, if she doesn't have any information, then why is it going to take her a long time to prepare? And that's if she doesn't Jeannie, have... Tracy, that's Jeannie Ree? Jeannie Ree. Jeannie yeah, Ree, yeah. She also worked at a law firm. She represented the Clinton Foundation and also Ben Rhodes. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah th- th- I forgot about that. High level, high level, high level swamp attorney. Seriously. And she was shot down. I mean, embarrassed in court. I'm not being hyperbolic. Read the transcript. I think I have it pinned in my main thread. If you read that or the video that I did, you'll see. The government attorneys and her were both basically embarrassed. The judge ended by saying, you don't want me to rule on this motion in front of you, in front of me to, to bar, you know, to stop this subpoena because I, you know, basically I won't rule in your favor. I'm going to kick it back to Louisiana instead. Louisiana got it back and ruled again that she needed to be deposed. This would be the third time they're ruling on it now in, in Louisiana. But at the same time, of course, the government's going through gymnastics, the Biden admin, trying to stop this case from moving forward. So they filed a mandamus um, petition with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And a mandamus pe- – oh, go ahead, Kyle. I was just going to say, I think it's really worth pointing out right now, like this only happens because the judge decided to just do the right thing, have the nuts to actually hear what's going on and give give this lawsuit like a real fair shot because this is so easily – um, you know, if, if it was in a softer area, if it was it was under a softer judge that was you know going to favor the government's position, it gets shut down at every turn. Because yep. like you say, the gymnastics they're doing, they're doing them because they're used to these things working. They're used to being able to make ridiculous filings and then the judge being like, well, oh, I guess so. Like you're the government, you know, and then yep. they just kind of go with it, which is really sad because these people are supposed to be impartial arbiters. And when we get one, it's so wild to actually see it actually take place in the way that we'd expect it to be. Um, it's just it's just. We, we can't be like more thankful for the right person receiving this case on the docket. That's all. A hundred thousand percent. And that's why I keep on stressing how serious this really is, because 
this is the way it's supposed to work, guys. We shouldn't be excited about it, but this is the way it's supposed to work, okay? <laughs> this is what's supposed to happen. So this judge in Louisiana has a set of balls on him. He's doing the right thing at every turn. The government's pissed off and is like, what the hell? Like Kyle said, this isn't working. This usually works. We're going to go and submit a, a mandamus petition to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and ask them to step in and stop this because this judge is out of his mind, right? If you remember, like, back to the, the case of General Flynn, they filed mandamus on the judge it, Sullivan in the General Flynn case because he refused to accept the fact that the Justice Department dropped their case against General Flynn. He would not accept that. And so they're like, judge can't do this. Please rule on this and make the judge do what we want. That's the same kind of a thing that they're doing with this case, except it's not the same thing because the judge is doing the right thing in this case. But they're using mandamus as a threat. So they had a mandamus petition up in front of him for numerous things. Um, there, they won't. The, the Fifth Circuit will not rule on the actual mandamus petition to, I guess, dismiss the to you know, dismiss the case because they're saying it's too premature and we haven't gotten even close yet. But they are kind of giving guidance back down to the judge in Louisiana about things he should probably do um, to avoid that, in my in my humble opinion. It's very standard in a way, but they the, man, the, the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has said, okay, the judge in Louisiana granted depositions of Vivek Murthy, of, of Jen Easterly, of all these department heads. It is nearly unheard of that this stuff is actually brought, that, that these depositions are actually granted in this way. You have to have a set of circumstances that is far outside of what is considered normal to have this stuff happen. The judge in Louisiana ruled that we are, in fact, in a situation where that's necessary. So he ruled in, in favor of these depositions. The Fifth Circuit said, actually, can you please look at this again, see if you can't get one of their little underlings to come in instead the judge in Louisiana said to the both parties, please go back and confer together, figure out who best could replace these people. If the people you come up with to replace the folks you want don't give you what you're looking for, then we can consider, um, then we can consider, you know, moving on or whatever. I'm getting a message. Hold on. There's somebody. Yeah. Let me let, um, go ahead, Reeve. Go ahead. You can join in real quick. Or for as long as you want. <laughs> sure. Are you able to hear me? I hear you. Yeah. Can you just introduce uh, yourself to folks who may not know you? Sure. Just very briefly. Um, I met Kyle uh, recently. He's uh, He's got that podcast going. I'm a, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a now retired assistant United States attorney out of the District of New Mexico. And um, I spent most of my career there prosecuting mostly uh, me Mexican cartel cases uh, I was one of the, the field attorneys pulled um, back to D.C. in the 2008 time frame for the for the Guantanamo cases. So I did that for a little while, a little bit of time in Philly. Um, and uh, prior to that, I was a United States Marine. So I have to confess, I don't um, I am not following these cases like you guys obviously are. Uh, that said, I, I'm a consumer of the of the the news related to it. I haven't read the pleadings and things like that. But um, I guess as a retired uh, federal prosecutor, if anyone has any um, interest in me answering any questions that you think I might be able to help with, 
that might be a way for uh, me to participate in this. Otherwise, I'm happy to listen. It's such an important discussion. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I've been kind of following this in, in, in serious detail for the past, like, almost a year now, um, analyzing what's going on here. And I guess it'd be really cool to have you here, as long as you can stay, of course, to um, pop in with any corrections on my legal analysis, because I'm not a lawyer. So if you have any if you have any corrections for me, that'd be great. Okay, happy to. Any uh, does anyone have any specific uh, legal or just uh, questions that my my opinion and background might help with? Um, I'm just doing background on stuff right now. So I'm assuming probably in about five to 10 minutes when I'm done with the background on it, I'm, there'll be a number of questions. Um, okay. Can I, is it okay if I just say something real quick? You've got the floor, my dear. Go ahead. All right. Um, so I think one of the reasons why I was, um, why I reached out to Kyle, uh, and he and I had never worked with each other. Uh, I was just a frontline, at the, for the most part, a frontline uh, grunt from my time in the Marines all the way through my time at DOJ. I actually am one of the attorneys at DOJ who spent my time in the courtroom. That is my most comfortable place outside of my living room. And so uh, the problem with DOJ that I've seen since the Obama era is that uh, it has become very incestuous with its DC, you know, elite, elitist, if you will, types of lawyers that just come in and out, in and out, in and out, kind of like re, like you were describing a few moments ago, how somebody comes out of law school, goes to a big firm, becomes an assistant uh, deputy attorney general, which is actually a big deal in DOJ, and then goes back to a law firm. And then those are all very, very incestuous relationships that those of us on the front lines out there in middle America, if you will, don't get to participate in. And in fact, we do everything we can to avoid the mothership. Now, for most of my career, D.C. left us alone, and that started to change uh, with Obama. It got uh, actually got really, really um, uh, difficult towards the end of his tenure and then um, we were le essentially left alone again and just told to do the right thing, be prosecutors. And in my case, it was prosecuting very violent and dangerous cartel organizations in New Mexico. Also, you know, had cases that stretched throughout the Southwest and other parts of the country. So my point in telling you that is, well, really two things. One, I, th I feel like there is a great deal to be worried about right now at DOJ and, and the FBI in particular. Uh, I told Kyle before, I heard this many, many times, this, this saying in the FBI that the first rule of the FBI is to protect the FBI. And so then when you see behavior that they're engaged in that is so obviously biased towards one party, if you will, or one side of the demographics in our country, because we are a divided country, sadly. Um, and you see the behavior that uh, is not consistent with equal protection in our country. For example, uh, you have uh, people that tried to um, attack the White House during the Trump era. Uh, nobody was charged with insurrection then or any other serious offense. In fact, 
nobody was charged for any of those uh, types of offenses when the riots occurred with Antifa and BLM during his inauguration week. Then you had Portland and Seattle. And those of us in the field, we see that. And I, I assure you, we are all very, very, very deeply bothered by the lack of equal protection and how these very serious enforcement tools are used against a certain segment of the population and not the other segment of the population. If I had my way, I would bring a massive um, long-term criminal investigation against organizations like Antifa, but you can't even get this administration or anyone associated with it to call criminal organizations like that an actual criminal organization. Yeah. Hey, Reeve, I was going to, I was going to jump in and kind of co-sign on something you're saying that I think is really important for people to realize. And, and it goes wider than just the attorneys at DOJ, obviously. But when we, uh, you know, you're pointing out that the field, like the frontline prosecutors and people can imagine that these people, you know, they actually do want to get in the courtroom. As Reeve just said, they want to go out there and they want to run cases. They want to go out there and lock up bad guys. There's an ideological drive like law enforcement um, on the front lines. They're the law enforcement on the back line. And, you know, they're the they're the second tier after the arrest. And and that exists for the FBI as well. There's a ton of people that really signed up to not get into politics and they don't care what how you vote. They just want to grab people that are trying to hurt children and, uh, you know, move drugs across the border and so on. But there's a second tier, and that's really what we're looking at, is these sort of swamp-type creatures, these uh, political climbers. In the, in the FBI, we call them blue flamers, which is like the flame at the end of an afterburner, where they are trying to burn their way up the corporate ladder. And so we get people that have three years of experience in a, in a, a field office working cases, six years of time at headquarters doing God knows whatever they do, and then they come out and they're running squads and they're trying to do the thing like Elvis Chan. And so you get this sort of back and forth between – D.C. and the field where they're, you know, climbing and ratcheting their way up the ladder. And the DOJ has those same group of people, these people that just aspire to have positions and titles and power. And, you know, that's the ones who are abusing the system. And you have the people on the front line that are just getting their reputation smeared because we're associated with them. And I think that's really important to note. I, and I none, also... of, none of those people uh, who are infusing themselves into the field work have any idea they probably don't even know what the inside of a federal courtroom looks like yeah i i want to say if you guys are appreciating this sort of back and forth and conversation you need to check out um kyle's podcast um there's a i believe it's two hours with you right right reeve um yeah it's a little over an hour i think and then i have a I, i'm fairly new to twitter i'm not tech savvy um, but I did do a, a monster thread, um, just kind of uh, laying out my my concerns and my position from the lens of a frontline prosecutor. And it's important to me because I, I work with great people at the FBI and in the DEA and, you know, every other three letter agency you can imagine, as well as my fellow attorneys at DOJ. I think the vast majority of us really do and do want to and do when we can to the best of our ability, the right thing. But this reach from DC has just gotten so out of control that the, uh, I hate the word micromanagement, but um, I'm hearing horror stories at DOJ now about the lack of prosecution on cases that are so basic in, in terms of their caretaking responsibility to the community. For example, you know, you got to lock up, felons in possession of a firearm when they have a 
you know, a thousand fentanyl pills with them, that's not a case you pass if you if you follow me. And I think that DOJ now, unfortunately, because of the mothership, has begun a process of uh, non-prosecution rather than actual prosecution of cases. So I'll leave it at that for a second. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Was that your dog? <laughs> yeah, it's my amazing yeah. dog. Hey, Reeve, as, yeah, as you drop off, but if you hit the, the mute button, then uh, we'll... We'll let Kate, Trace keep going. Hey, it's funny. He calls it the mothership when they talk about uh, Maine justice at DOJ. Um, I always call like FBI headquarters and, and DOJ Maine the Death Star. I think it's the same thing, but it's much more ominous for some of us because it doesn't <laughs> – we don't come out of there, I think. I think you get uh, thrown in the gulag if you, if you show up like uh, Steve's thinking about doing soon. Yeah, I, I just want to say too, I, we, you know, before I get back into kind of history on the case that we're, we're dealing with here – you guys have to understand, I do as much as I can to support guys like like Kyle and Steve and even Reeve, people who are brave enough to talk about this stuff. Because if if you let – if and these guys do a great job of keeping front and center. They don't really need my help, to be honest. But they're bringing the goods. And if you let these guys kind of, you know, leave them out there alone in the wilderness, first of all, other folks aren't empowered to come forward, which is why we need to keep – the you know keep the megaphone on the house and on Jim Jordan and on anyone who's running any sort of judiciary esque committee to to do the right thing by these guys who risked everything to step forward and be supposedly protected whistleblowers but aren't they're not protected um, and and nothing's really being done about that in my opinion but we need to keep elevating these folks so that they have the support that they need to continue to do what they're doing so important so anytime you see one of these guys doing their thing out there, amplify what they're saying, you know, keep, keep an arm around them, treat them like they're your uh, colleague because we're all in this kind of thing together. So, um, Reeve, thanks so much for, for saying all that stuff. It's appreciated. Um, and if you want to poke in again, just raise your hand and, and Justin, I'll get to you too, but I really just want to get through this little summary of where we're at before. So we have a foundation. Um, so where was I? Okay, so the, the D.C. court is scolding uh, scolding the attorneys, saying, you know, I'm not ruling on this. The court in Louisiana says, okay, you know, again, you have to sit for a deposition because they can't get this information from anywhere else. In the meantime, we had the mandamus at the um, Fifth Circuit Appeals. That was ruled on. The judge said, the judges said, three of them said, hey, you know, you might want to look at this again. They proposed people who could be replacements for the, the department heads. They got there, but there was a sticking point, and the sticking point was Rob Flaherty. Now, Flaherty wasn't originally on the first complaint because they didn't know that Flaherty was involved in all of these censorship activities. But through discovery on the first complaint, they found a ton of emails between other people where he was copied that lent them to – under lent them to understand that he was also involved in all this and they got a whole bunch of other information as well so they filed an amended complaint added him as a plaintiff and then needed discovery from him they waffled wouldn't provide it wouldn't allow it went back and forth complained stomped their feet um whatever and finally it was ruled that he did have to provide um they wanted a deposition uh, in, in, in person. They wanted a deposition. But the judge said, let's start with written interrogatory first, where we give you questions and you have to respond in writing, plus a discovery window where you need to repl- you know, provide X amount of documents about whatever. And so they, the judge in the case in Louisiana specifically said, if he doesn't 
provide what you're looking for, then he will be forced to sit for deposition. There's no waffling around this. Um, And so that happened. And then we started getting this discovery from Flaherty, which is what we're seeing in what Missouri and Louisiana's AGs are releasing publicly today. There's a lot of other mumbo jumbo going on um, outside of this little squabbles back and forth. For example, the, the Biden administration is saying, please seal these depositions, please seal these uh, videos of these depositions, and also seal the text of these depositions themselves because our people are getting threatened and harassed and, you know, they're fearful and they're being targeted and blah, blah, blah. And Missouri and Louisiana, and Louisiana said, um, too bad, so sad, you know, government officials being held accountable for the actions that they're taking to stifle a constitutional right granted to all Americans by God, when abused, should be ready to be held accountable by the citizens of the country who are their boss. And the judge in the case was like, fine, here's what we'll do as a compromise. We're going to say, you you know, we're going to say redact certain identifying information, like, for example, somebody's address or their personally identifiable information. Um, and the rest of it is fair game. You know, the rest of it's fair game. I'm not going to seal depositions and information that is vital to the public, you know, concern. These cases are public record. They're not to be held in secret. This is exactly the same way. And I'm sure if Tom Fitton were here, he'd agree that they over, they over redact information that they don't want you to see simply for the reason that's embarrassing to the government. I mean, you see redaction abused left, right, and center all the time. So the government, the, the judge in Louisiana wasn't having any of that either. And not only that, but the, the Biden administration couldn't provide one example of any threat that had been received by any of the people that they were claiming were receiving threats. So us being the very, um, you know, I guess, friendly, uh, decent people we are, are not barraging these folks with emails like calling for their head. That kind of changed yesterday in a way when Scott Gottlieb did his Twitter thread in response to the Baron, uh, the Berenson, um, disclosures in the Twitter files where he said, Oh, this is really bad. I'm being targeted. You know, here's an example of, of a, a post docked the person who made the post by exposing their Twitter username for everyone to go after them. That was fine. But the post was basically just true, like about something that Gottlieb did. So. That's the place that we're at in terms of that. This has been a very high-level 30,000-foot summary, but the this case is sincerely the most important civil liberties case in modern history. It has been – there's been attempts to shoot it down at every level, and it's been unsuccessful. It, it, the case continues, and um, I wanted to quickly – and then I'll get to Justin and James – Name here has been doing threads about um, the people who are working at the top of the social media companies, what they what their positions are and what former intelligence organizations they've worked for. And we found a lot of crossover. So name, take the floor and go ahead and talk about this. That's probably one of the with the, the Twitter files release. Uh, we see the coordination with um, FBI and Twitter. Uh and I started the account a month ago and just out of curiosity, was curious how many actual former intelligence community um, employees worked at the social media companies. And I found there was like 15 
FBI agents, former FBI agents, and I think two CIA agents that worked at Twitter. Not many, but um, they were all, there was two of them hired prior to 2017. And then from 2017 on, they hired like 15, just stacked them up there, including uh, Jim Baker. Um, and then Facebook is the interesting thing. Uh, if everyone's seen uh, Attorney General Bailey's threads that he's putting out with the actual emails from the White House to Facebook, I did a thread. I'll try to pin it to the spaces. Um, Facebook and Google, prior to 2017, they had about 10 former intelligence community um, employees. After 2017, both companies hired, like Facebook hired over 115 and Google, I think 160 or so. But more importantly, and I don't know if the attorney generals that are you know, suing you know, the White House or the federal government over this, I don't know if they're aware or how many people listening are aware, but to add context to the Twitter files and all this information that we're, we're seeing, the people that are managing the trust and safety at Facebook and Google are former CIA agents. So the head guy, and I'm, and I'm reading these emails that uh, attorney general Bailey has posted between the white house and Facebook. And I know the names are redacted in the email, but I, it's pretty obvious to me. I'm assuming who's writing them. And I, it, you know, cause it's the same language that, Aaron Berman uses and Aaron Berman is former CIA 17 years. He was a tops level senior analyst. He used to write the presidential daily briefs. He would brief, brief cabinet members, uh, congressional uh, members, the national security council. I mean, he was as high as you can get. He his work Hold on one second before you go on Kyle hopping real quick. <laughs> Yeah, name. I just want to kind of add a finer point to what you're saying there, because we're using the word, and I, I just want to be real specific when we're saying the word agent, um, because the CIA uses that word very differently than the FBI does. In the case of the FBI, that's a badge and a gun. That's a sworn federal law enforcement officer. Um, however, with the CIA, you're, you're talking about analytical people. So just for people's awareness, as they're listening, the word agent is kind of bandied around as like someone who is an agent of the government. That actually is a, there's a legal definition of that as well. But in this case, we're talking about analytical people. And that is oftentimes because people who are analysts spend all their time with data. They're the ones that are sitting there combing through data. They're oftentimes the ones with a lot of the database access within the intelligence community uh, sphere. And so they're used to handling it. It makes sense that they're interested in going where the data is, which is what he's talking about. And so, you know, um, it's not necessarily the physical, like the position of being a CIA uh, case officer, which some people are going to be associating with the word agent. These are mostly analytical types that are working out of the CIA and the FBI. They're like analytical agents because we have people that work cyber and stuff like that um, that are not necessarily doing outdoor work. Um, but just I just wanted to get the language correct a little bit. Yeah. So this so Aaron Berman, I put I was able to get my thread. It's at the top of the spaces there. How do you um, do that? I need to learn how to do that. Uh, go over, go over to one of your tweets and then um, on the tweet you basically go to share it, hit the share button, and then it'll pop up to share it on the thread or on Fantastic, the Fantastic, because I'm going to put the thread okay. today. Go ahead. So, so Aaron Berman, you know, I, I guess I got lucky finding this guy, but he, he, they don't hide it, you know, and that's what was kind of 
surprising to me is is they put that they're former CIA. So, and on Aaron's uh, link file, that's like tweet number five on my thread. Uh, he he's the head of the misinformation policy at Facebook. He worked at the CIA as a analyst, uh, senior analytic manager for 17 years. And in 2019 went straight over to Facebook and he's the head guy for misinformation at Facebook. And these emails that attorney general Bailey put out where whoever's emailing from Facebook, you know, specifically saying what their policy is, that's exactly the things that Aaron has shared. And there's, if you go down the thread, there's a video of him talking about, and we can talk about COVID, like how they, this was a, another incredible find that I, I got this YouTube video of Google, Twitter, and Facebook talking on some health panel with uh, Stanford. Yep. And, and in one of the emails that Bailey uh, put out, was that Facebook is removing content regarding COVID and vaccine that doesn't even necessarily violate their policies. So they have very strict kind of controlling the narrative of what they wanted everyone to see. And I have a bunch on that too. Um, I want to share time with a bunch of the folks who've had their hands up for a while, but I have a whole bunch on that that I definitely need to, you know, get out of my, my gut on this space today. Um, You know, remember, we had this hubbub over the disinformation governance board, right? They came public with this. All of a sudden, they're forming this disinformation governance board. It's going to, you know, filter out misdis and malinformation with Nina Jankowitz or whatever her name was, who was like a huge Russiagate proponent of complete disinformation and lies, and she was going to run it. And, you know, that was not because they weren't already doing this and they wanted to start. That was because they needed the funding to be able to manage the CISA help desk that was taking all of this information in because the social media companies were getting so overwhelmed by all of the requests and the emails going back and forth that they needed some way to fund a central hub. And remember, they're working in partnership with non-governmental organizations, but those NGOs are being funded by your tax dollars via grants. So this is, and then you have the FBI and other agencies, I'm sure, paying Twitter and I'm sure we'll learn other social media companies for their time, okay? So this is a big circle of your tax dollars being funded to suppress your own speech in favor of propaganda. Um, Before we move on to other stuff, name, you can pick it back up. So yeah, just just one other last thing is just just to understand in the context of when we're seeing emails and information released on through, through Twitter files or, you know, these attorney generals with these lawsuits that are putting these emails out to, you got to understand the people in charge of controlling what is or is not misinformation at both Google and Facebook. Facebook is the, is uh, Aaron Berman. And at Google, there's three former CIA analysts so they're they're running, you know, former CIA are now controlling what is misinformation at Google and Facebook. And and Google and YouTube make an entry today that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. So we'll get into that. Um, okay, so I'm going to go, Steve. That's, yeah, I, that's it. 
Okay, cool. And you can ch- jump in whatever you want, Neem. Um, I've got Steve. You'll, I'll bring you back up after I get Justin. Justin, welcome. And- oh, Tracy, great to be with you. Can you hear me okay? We hear you. Well, uh, great to be with you guys. Yeah, what a crazy day. I was actually on the plane uh, back from Salt Lake to San Diego where I live. <clears throat> and uh, I had gotten word the day before that Alex uh, might be dropping something with my name on it. And when it came down, all of a sudden my phone just started blowing up. Like, oh, okay, here we go. What's the deal here? And so it was a, you know, it was a very short Twitter files. And for those of you who don't kind of know my history, I'm the the founder of Rational Ground. We were one of the original sort of ragtag groups of uh, analysts and experts and everything else there. We we were basically spent most of 2020 supporting Scott Atlas when he was at the White House, getting him all the charts and data that he needed. And then, you know, we basically have been growing a, a, a Twitter war and war across all sorts of ventures. We've hosted a bunch of conferences and we work with uh, a bunch of people here, right here on the call even. But uh, in July 13th, 2021, uh, Facebook kicked me off uh, for a particular infographic that we had made on masking children. Uh, July 15th, if you recall, was the infamous presser with uh, Jen Psaki and Vivek Murthy where they come up and say the social media companies are not doing enough and we're working with them on a weekly basis to call out balls and strikes and fouls and take down those accounts. July 17th, Twitter kicks me off for a tweet I had in October 2020. Uh, and then August 31st, I filed my lawsuit with the Liberty Justice Center here in the San Diego area. Uh, we come to find out for the Twitter files now that just a few days after that, Scott Gottlieb goes after me trying to get one of my tweets taken down as well. And, and it's all in the family right here. I'll just, um, I just posted a quick little, uh, thread there to the, to the, the, uh, the spaces here. But yeah, the, the, the issue that I'm, that I'm finding, Tracy, is really interesting, which is my, my, so my lawsuit was, I think, one of the first ones filed. Uh, before uh, any of these other lawsuits, but I'm here in San Diego and it got moved to the Northern Court in, in, in Northern California and assigned to uh, Judge Breyer. Uh, not, not SCOTUS retired Judge Breyer, but his brother, Justice Breyer. Uh, now, Justice Breyer, believe it or not, is not the worst judge on that court, uh, but he's not going to do me any favors. So, uh, we, we got some initial FOIA back, but it wasn't enough to wet his whistle. So he dropped the case from Twitter and Facebook technically, uh, until we can sort of pick up back with information. But we've since gotten numerous FOIAs. And of course, uh, I've been working with, uh, Janine and others, um, on the, uh, the, the court and following very closely what's happening with, um, Missouri v. Biden. And, and, you know, some of that information has really bolstered our case. So we're trying to figure out if we're going to go forward, what we're going to do there. Um, some of the FOIAs that we got back were really interesting because we had distinct um, conversations between Facebook, Vivek Murthy, the CDC, and it was almost like this this strange um, mobster relationship because you saw, you know, Vivek Murthy on that infamous presser July fifteenth, where they basically just admitted we're we're basically using these these social media companies as proxy to quash your First Amendment rights. And yeah. uh, what we come to find out is that uh, Facebook then comes back shortly after that, or I think around that same time, and says, hey, uh, you know, we feel so good about our, our relationship, CDC and HHS. We're going to give you $15 million in free advertising. And they were so appreciative. Now, there are vehicles apparently that are already in place for Facebook to do that, to grant ad money and ads to these social media companies. But it certainly looked like this sort of kind of payoff moment, right? 
Because what would happen? We, we they had what we found out from the FOIAs is that they were having weekly bolo meetings, be on the lookout meetings, and they would provide these powerpoints. These powerpoints would say, "Here's a the kind of tweet that we don't particularly like." Right? They were very careful sometimes in their language not to say, "Take this down." Uh, unlike the the recent FOIAs that you guys have demonstrated there, but the the yeah, the 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 FOIAs basically the the FOIA emails just showed yeah. Take down these type of tweets. And now those tweets are gone. We actually have the URLs to the Instagram and to the Facebook that they provided. And they said, these are the kind of things that we want taken down. In one example, for example, they they asked to be taken down a tweet that was questioning the impact of vaccines on menstrual cycles. Well, we now know that's true. <laughs> and uh, other impacts as well that they saw, thought were untoward, but turns out were true. And, and, you know, here we have not only an infringement on rights, but you have uh, an actual health safety issue where they were quashing a concern that was legitimate, perhaps could have uh, avoided uh, some real messy, uh, excuse that adverb there, but real messy issues that women have been having menstrual cycles and vaccine injuries. So th- these are not little things. These actually deal with actual physical harm as well as harm to our First Amendment rights. Uh, right now, just an update where uh, we, we had filed an update uh, a few weeks ago. We're in discussions with Twitter uh, perhaps to do kind of an Alex Barrison thing where I'll get all of my information from them, but we're not sure. So uh, that's kind of where we are. And we just keep the FOIAs coming. They always help my case. Fantastic. Awesome. Justin, thanks for standing up and, you know, Justin, I have, a, I have a question. How long does it take to get a FOIA response? Well, in, in this case, we had to press them pretty hard. And, uh, you know, we didn't have the, the force, uh, the political force that the AGs have. Uh, but it took, you know, I, I filed my lawsuit uh, August 31. I think the first FOIAs we didn't get back until like October. Okay, thank you. I just want to clarify one thing: what the, what the uh, you know AGs in Missouri and Louisiana are getting back is not FOIA. Um, that's the difference here. That's gotcha. that's discovery materials. So it's a completely different animal. Correct. Um, yeah, we we didn't even get to discovery. They wouldn't. We we had to get FOIAs first before we could even get to any sort of lawsuit because you guys are way far down the road and 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 we're so happy. You know, we're like we're looking at Janine. I talked to to Jay Bachatari and others all the time and just thrilled about where you guys are going because it can only help the the cases and, and see what happens there. I mean, in the end, what we're finding is that um, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I had uh, I had a, a feeling that my name would come up in these Twitter files. Uh, I think this won't be the only time that myself or, uh, gosh, a dozen other members of my team who were um, ousted from Twitter and now just only recently back. So well, uh, it, it's, it's neat to see that. I join you in the Twitter files. Um, I was also in the Twitter files. So. <laughs> oh, I remember that, right? Yeah. So this, look, it, it's. Um, I, I think we ought to. We, what we what we do need, Tracy, and I, I don't know if someone has already done this is. Uh, I know ICANN has some on the, the, the vaccine stuff, but we need kind of that central repository where we can take all of the FOIAs and all the discovery stuff that we have and put it in one place so we can all kind of be informed of that. I, I agree. There needs to be a central repository for it for sure. Um, are you going to hang for a bit, Justin? Yes, I will. Okay, cool. Um, Steve, go ahead, and then I'll take um, I'll take my lovely blonde beauty down there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I just wanted to piggyback on something that Kyle was talking about with the the uh, the, the, the agents and, and you know the difference. Um, something that uh, I really haven't heard talked about very very much is just the timeline we're on right now. Uh, we're you know a little over twenty years since nine eleven, and uh, you know after that happens, you have a huge surge, uh, and especially on the national security side of of of, of just beefing up staffing. 
Um, so now we're right, right now uh, hitting that 20 year mark. You have a whole bunch of folks that got brought into the fold of the, you know, the, into what eventually became the mission creep of, you know, counterterrorism and then and then homegrown terrorism and, and now domestic violent extremism. And that's just been their worldview for the last two decades. And they're now hitting their retirement age. So there's just going to be this huge you know, quantity of folks that are looking for this retirement gig that have established long have seen social media essentially be birthed and then evolve into where it is now and have these longstanding relationships. And I think that you're going to see a lot of those people uh, move on over into the big tech sector. So that's something that uh, is certainly concerning to me. Yeah, once they get to that age, right? I mean, <laughs> they still have a lush, cushy job waiting for them at, at one of these, unless we change things, which is possible. Well, federal retirement, yeah, it happens really early, too. That's the other thing, Tracy. Like, a lot of people are looking at retirement like they're going to be in their 60s. But that's not how it necessarily works if you're in the federal system, especially if you came in young enough to be able to to take advantage of it. So when you're talking about someone like an FBI agent, like, they can retire at 50 if they have 20 years of service. So they only had to be hired at age 30. They're good to go. And they're like, they got a lot of work history in front of them, probably. Um, I almost think that you should change the the name of the space, which I know you can edit as it goes. Uh, Missouri v. Biden. And what we're Which is to say, I'm yeah, I know, I, I just got a call and I should have muted, um, which is to say that it's, it's the information industrial complex. And that's what this is. This is the outgrowth that happens the same way that the military sent generals with stars on their, their collars, you know, into private industry, not because they know how to build jets or they know what the best jets are. They just know who signs the check for the next jet. And so now we're looking at people. It's like, who's going to pay the big uh, cloud computing contract and who's going to be the person that's going to be able to to pay for the next big software exploitation when we're going to go and look for information i did as you asked kyle it's changed barry go ahead barry you're up hey tracy thanks so much for the space and for all the investigative reporting you do and a name and I'm honored to be able to share this stage with kyle and steve and those who take their oath of to the Constitution really seriously. I want to just quickly kind of shine a flashlight on something that Name had said about when some of these individuals joined some of these, um, some of the social media companies, because I think that some of that gets lost in the greater conversation of just the average everyday voter that wonders, like, why the hell is this happening? So when we look at, like, starting in 2014 with what happened in Ukraine, right, with Victoria Newland, and then we see um, we see Lindsey Graham and McCain, you know, kind of making the promise, the plan for the war in Ukraine to start, we see... Um, populist movements like Bernie Sanders, who are anti-war, kind of getting shoved off the stage because they know that Hillary Clinton would be able to carry that forward. And then suddenly Trump comes and it causes this total panic when we see things like Brexit and Marine Le Pen. So I see it as this total panic from NATO to have to silence the American people who want to return to their sovereignty, to their freedom. And then suddenly you see like Graphica teaming up with the Senate Intel community. And, and I think that every American should know and ask the question, like, why is our Department of Defense and the Pentagon giving grants to silence our speech about things like COVID and about how we feel about mail-in ballots and, um, you know, just the social issues. And I just think that it's important line to connect those dots because at the end of the day, our greatest currency, which is our voting, was was stolen. And the censorship 
you know, is just way more sinister than just, and I know you guys know this, but just way more sinister than some agent sitting in an office somewhere um, and the millions of dollars that NGOs funnel to just people to, to silence us. Just the overall geopolitical picture is just really terrifying. And I just wanted to shine a light on that. No, thank you. You're absolutely right. Um, Reeve, I'm going to come to you right now. Um, to add to what you're saying, um, it's really fifth generation warfare um, on a global scale. So if you know anything about 5GW, you'll understand what's being done right now on a global scale. Um, and we can get into that a little bit as well. Um, Reeve, go ahead. Uh, thank you, because I have to take off in a few minutes. Um, uh, <clears throat> what I wanted to say, and it actually... Um, touches on what some of the other uh, people, including yourself, were talking about earlier is, and I address it in my thread a little bit, but the Twitter files caused me, I don't know how to describe it, maybe uh, a, a legal um, expert, if you will, and I hate to say stuff like that because that's not how I talk, but you know, I've got a tremendous amount of experience on the front lines doing the kind of work that you need to do to get the job done. And so my work, for example, was countless uh, wiretap investigations of uh, very violent and dangerous Mexican cartel, criminal organizations, things like that. And so when I read on the Twitter files how my former colleagues from the D.C. side of the, uh, the organization were able to literally just ask a service provider, like, um, I know they don't call themselves a service provider, but they are, uh, Twitter, uh, hey, we would like you to do these things. I, I was so stunned. I, I could barely breathe through my, my uh, reaction to it when I started reading that thread. And here's why. I know that how hard it is to get any organization or any corporation, especially these monsters, including Twitter, uh, Facebook, etc. When I needed an order signed, well, when I needed information from any of these organizations or any of my FBI agents needed information from any of these organizations, we either got a warrant or we got a su subpoena or um, we got a wiretap uh, authorization from a United States district judge, not, not a magistrate judge. So the, the informal relationship that they cultivated for these purposes is what really, really terrifies me. And I think that's where the focus needs to be. And the recommendation that I made to, um, to Twitter, I don't know if anyone will ever see it, but there literally there needs to be a Berlin Wall between the United States government, especially federal law enforcement or or intelligence agencies and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, TikTok, you name it. Every uh, one of these organizations needs to build the same kind of wall that I faced every time I tried to get uh, Verizon to give us the information that we needed. And I had agents coming to me telling me that their legal department wasn't cooperating. So and my experiences were so contrary to how they were doing their job that I just couldn't believe it. It just didn't seem believable to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, because I mean, even looking at Reeve, if you even look at the methods that they use to go through the process you're describing when they need to, to get these warrants, they're lying 
in the affidavits to get them now when they came. I mean, you're seeing abject lies being written in affidavits for tap and trace warrants for all kinds of stuff. So well, let, let me tell you, <laughs> we, the, I micromanaged my wiretaps. I know so many of my colleagues did as well. The uh, wiretaps under federal law, when at least on the on the criminal side, especially they're supervised by what the, the statute calls the attorney for the United States. And it's taken very seriously. The agent's aff- affidavit's important, but it's just an exhibit to the attorney's application for the wiretap. And so the fact that they are so cavalier in these relationships, just it, it just floored me. It doesn't exist in the real world, that type of relationship. It's normally very adversarial. How this happened, I think, is another uh, thing that Congress is going to need to look into. We need to know how this very familial relationship developed between the FBI, et cetera, and Twitter and so on. And and ag- agreed. And, and you know, the thing that I, I want to add to that, too, is th- the remedy in this case, what they're looking for uh, first in the temporary injunction is to stop all of that. They want all of that stopped immediately. They want also, I think they're going to be expanding if they haven't considered this already to make it so that they can't work through NGOs, because then the government will just go to this NGO or the Atlantic Council or Stanford or whoever and, and work as using them as a proxy. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's loosey goosey. And you know what? I think a lot of it is sad because there are people like you out there who believe, you know, you guys are harder co- to convince than anybody because you just can't believe that the institutions that you owe. That's you so know, true. That you wow. used to work, it's, it's, you're the hardest to convince and you're the most important to convince, to be honest. Like you yeah. need to be smacked upside the head with it. Everybody that I've talked to, um, outside of people who have come out on their own as whistleblowers from inside the system cannot believe that it's actually yeah. possible. I, that is so true. I've had a very hard time believing this. I, I'm read it and read it and read it and read it. And I know I didn't misread it. That relationship existence wrong. So the other thing is that I, I uh, actually responded to, uh, your tweet, um, the uh, the reality of you know the slippery slope argument is often overused, but it's very real and it's, it exists for a reason. If the government can utilize a private party or a private company to violate an American civil liberties um, related to speech, then why can't it do it to any other uh, constitutional right? Yep. That's that's a very very serious issue that I think Congress needs to look into as well. Yeah, no, it's and and we need that strong oversight. You know, we can't have these letters that are just unanswered or when they are answered it's lies. Uh, you know, we have we have Ray in particular lying, just lying in his responses to Congress. I mean, lying or or not even just lying, lying by omission or lying outright and then later information will resurface and there's no accountability for it. So there's there's this oversight ability and the way the government is structured with these three separate branches on purpose and that's not happening and until it starts we're in, we're in deep 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 trouble um as a nation honestly i think we really are hey tracy i, I agree i i have to go hey thank you so much for the invite and um i wish everyone the very best thanks reeve glad to have you hey, here reeve, good talking to you buddy hey uh, tracy i was just gonna tell you I, I had to drop off for a minute uh because i got a phone call and um I didn't mute it, which is why I was having trouble kind of talking to you earlier. But uh, I just like to give people hope when there's reasons to hope. And I, I always think that uh, when people step up and do the right thing, then uh, we're we're in better places. I've mentioned before that I've got a, a number of contacts that are still really 
good people that are doing good things inside the FBI. And I just had another person reach out to me to coordinate a whistleblower activity, like as we were talking just now. So these things are ongoing. Um, they don't, they don't stop. We're in touch with people now that we're getting closer and closer to the source of being able to get it directly to people like Jim Jordan's hands so they can move forward. Um, and some of these things have the ability to actually have action now that, uh, that the Republicans have retaken the house. So I'm, I'm literally trying to like help people inject this thing directly into the process with very, very little middleman. And, uh, I just wanted to tell you that, that one, that's why my connection was shaky, but two, it's happening like in real time. So this stuff is, it's really an unprecedented time that we're looking at with a good judge in, in Missouri v. Biden with the exposure, which like that kind of cracked the door open, the exposure of the Twitter files and the fact that Elon bought it super, super wild. Like what are the odds? So we're cracking open that door even a little wider. And then hopefully we can continue to have people come and shed more light on. And I wanted to just like call people's attention to something on the top of the space. I pinned a tweet from Harmeet Dillon uh, that came from uh, October 27th of last year. It shows a document that came from another whistleblower within my group that I, that I was able to expose to Jordan's folks that said that the, that they were, that the FBI, this is with the, um, the, what was it called? The Public Corruption Intelligence Unit, which is a intelligence type group out of DC, published this document, which was for the social, social media teams to help them look for election crimes. And two of the crimes they listed were a misinformation and disinformation, which are really critical to what we're dealing with right now. And it just shows that the number of people that are making these decisions and putting these documents out and trying to advise the process within the bureau, like they're not attorneys. They're not sworn law enforcement. They're analytical types. They don't know what a freaking federal crime is. And it's not a crime to speak things that are lies. And it's not a crime to speak things that are actually accidentally false either. Um, but the fact that they're able to put this stuff out, you know, that's why this was something we had, uh, uh, had released. And I just wanted people to be aware of it there. And then there's a couple of questions underneath it immediately where people are asking Harmeet if it's legit. And I'm just telling you right now that it is. Yeah, I, re- I remember that. We were chit-chatting when that happened. Um, Justin, go ahead. And before you start speaking, I wanna... there, there are a bunch of people. Oh, go ahead and name. You can go in a second. I just want to say this. There's a bunch of people requesting to speak. I just want to get the foundations down of all this. I want to go through some of these these discoveries and then I'll open it up to people to be able to join and say or ask or whatever. Um, so just hang in there, Justin uh, or name. Go ahead. Yeah. I just want to say one thing. Uh, I think Reeve mentioned it about his suggestion that Twitter put like a wall up Chinese wall between them and, you know, the government, uh, these Intel uh, agencies. Uh, I, one other thing I found, I haven't tweeted it yet, but on, I think it was September fifth 2018 there was that was the i believe a senate intel committee hearing with um cheryl sandberg of facebook and jack dorsey of twitter cheryl says in testimony there that when she's they're talking about uh posts that they you know censor or 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 ban or remove that they use outside groups and she also said they get hints from law enforcement and that that's not anything to do with like crimes or like say child exploitation or whatever it's it's like they're specifically talking about removing misinformation and what, whatever admits, they define that as <laughs> exactly and she admits that they use quote hints from law enforcement for that so it's, amazing they don't well try to i hide think it. We, we learned in this in this lawsuit that that the social media companies are actually writing. I'm sorry, the government is actually helping to craft and write the terms of service for the social media companies. So then they can be like, oh, I think this violates your terms. Well, um, they, so, they also have ex, you know, CIA and they're writing the policy. Yep. Right? Yep. Yep. Okay, Justin, sorry about that. Go ahead. No, that's great. I just thought since uh, we have a good critical audience here, I think it's important that uh, the listeners know 
how they respond to you know criticisms or people that question what this is about and everything else there uh, because you know it can sometimes get a little wonky like you know we can take our angst out on twitter and facebook but in the end as we talk about they are private companies uh, and there's still you know a lot of case law to be made on what that means but absolutely the government working in proxy so even my lawyers actually my my lawyers tell me there is strong case law that the government should be upholding and providing access to these places so that the the idea that the defense that Twitter is a private company by one of my lawyers, he feels it falls on deaf ears when it comes to case law and First Amendment issues. There's a case called Packingham versus North Carolina, and the Supreme Court you know, basically said it's a fundamental principle of the First Amendment that all persons have access to places where they can speak and listen, and then after reflection, speak and listen once more. I'm quoting from the uh, the determination there. And, and I think that's something we have to keep in mind is strong uh, support and defense of the First Amendment. Because when you when you look at this, but basically, you know, we, we always talk about Section 230, right? But one of the sections of 230, there's a quote from it that I think is is, is actual U.S. law now, which is, quote, the, the United States, it is the, the it is the policy of the United States to, quote, preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the Internet that is unfettered by federal or state regulation. And so I, I think, you know, there is a strong case to be made that you always, always err on the side of the First Amendment, because what we in, what we have now and what my lawsuit alleges, and I think the, the AGs also have this this sort of tenant, which is the government conspired to remove from the Internet, which is a public forum, uh, valid public health messages and social media posts, and that the federal government pressured these companies to take down these posts. In fact, if I were these companies and the Overton window kind of shifts, right, which it seems like it is, like this actually might be the defense that Twitter takes, which is to say, hey, look, we were feeling massive pressure from the federal government pressure, they, they and from agencies, right? They threatened them directly. And yeah, that- exactly. They threatened them. And, and, you know, you can see that in the mentality in the FOIAs we got. I mentioned, you know, eventually Facebook says, hey, hey, how about uh, how about 15 million dollars? And the government says, that's fine. But we have these stipulations. You need to address it this way. And they say, OK, yeah, that's fine. Here you go. Fifteen million dollars of free advertising. Right. I, I don't know if that happened to the other platforms. I haven't seen it on Twitter yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was kind of like this payoff money, this protection money from the government breathing down your neck and over the pulpit, the White House pulpit saying you're not doing enough. Uh, you see these guys over here, they took down those accounts. Why aren't you taking down these accounts too? What a crazy ride that we've all been through. And, you know, there's a there's an interesting web that kind of combines a lot of these things. You can find these little breadcrumbs along the way. One of them was an MIT study that was done by a bunch of PhD candidates. I think it was in the winter of 2021. So it was early 2021. And they put together sort of like this visual web of people that, uh, like myself and others, were opposing the usual narrative. And on that web, they had what, what they called the um, the anti-masker network. And it included myself, it included Alex, it included a bunch of people. Uh, that was the the actual visual graphic that Slavit came and uh, told Twitter, hey, take down Alex's post. I've seen him on this visual. And, and actually, one-to-one, each one of the accounts that this MIT data visualization has, it's called COVID Stories, Every single one of those accounts got dinged or taken down over the last two years. It's just the breadcrumbs are becoming so obvious now. But just that little tidbit, wanted to pass to your audience. 
when you're talking to people and when you're trying to convey why this is so important, you always err on the side of protecting the First Amendment. And the government was using serious pressure to hunt down these these accounts that they didn't like that were part of the narrative. They were using the social media companies as proxy to weld against your First Amendment rights. Yeah, and it wasn't only with 230 either, which is just misinterpreted completely a lot of the time. It's it's with antitrust. It's with all kinds of threats that they're giving. And that's the difference. You know, the 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 certain side of the political spectrum is very hesitant to say um it's a private company when they're doing what what, you know, they're bidding. But but as soon as they're they're criticized by the other ideological spectrum of the world it's oh well it's a private company you can't have it both ways and especially it is not acting as a private company underneath the boot of the federal government and and threatening their livelihoods and their business and then paying them off for it like you're mentioning so um go ahead kyle I mean, I know some of your listeners have been following all this stuff religiously, and I know you know a lot about this stuff, Tracy, because you're you're on it all the time every time I talk to you. But anybody who missed Tom Fenton talking about this the other day when the, one of the last Twitter files, maybe it was two or three back, um, when we saw the, the expo of, of Mark Warner kind of uh, reaching out and we had Adam Schiff out there trying to, you know, comp- compress <laughs> things, right? So um, Tom Fenton used a, a term that I hadn't uh, thought about in, in this way, but he referred to it as gangster government. And uh, and it's it's very similar to what they were doing. That was uh, it's like a protection racket that you'd see organized crime implementing, like old school 1960s, 1970s organized crime. Like it's a real nice business you got running over there. It'd be a shame if we dropped a big pile of legislation on you that made it expensive to operate. And and so that is the government hammer that's leaned over it. And then you see the FBI kind of warm up and say, hey, you know, here's my carrot. Here's my stick. You have the opportunity to uh, you know be on the bad side of us. Or we could let you part of this intelligence community and some of your people are going to get clearances and we'd love to set up this really cool door where we send you all of our garbage through this, this thing called teleport. So all these kind of ideas, um, they're, they're just interesting that the techniques are being used um, in, in the same way that you'd recruit a source that was being used on these, yeah. uh, you know, on these tech companies. And we're only seeing Twitter, but I'm confident the others had the same because I, I know for a fact that Elvis Chan was holding meetings with the CEO of um, – of Reddit and he was putting it out in front of thousands of people like, listen, you know, like we can't tell you to censor things, but man, you've got a terms and service policy and you sure could like, wouldn't that be something if you did? And he said this in front of thousands of people, because just like I was saying, uh, Tim Tebow had access to these big national platforms. Elvis Chan felt himself in a place where he had a big national audience of both FBI and other law enforcement entities where they had this pipeline developed to just send stuff in and get rid of it. And I think that's really worth noting that this is not, you know, if the government can't do it, it can't do it by proxy either. Like Steve and I couldn't task a source to go do something that we couldn't do ourselves. And and that's really where we're at with this stuff. One yeah. other quick note, I just going to say, uh, Facebook, I'm sorry, the government had access to this tool that Facebook provides only to its top tier elite. If there are agency people that are listening in, you know what I'm talking about. There is this tool called CrowdTangle, which is reserved for the highest gold standard of uh, people who spend millions of dollars a day on the Facebook network, and they gave that access to the government. So it gave them demographic drill downs. It gave them all sorts of things that are not available to you or I or to any sort of lay publisher. Very few people had access to that. Facebook, again, kowtowed and gave them crowd tangle access. Well, that was an awkward silence while I was typing a DM. Sorry. But yeah, there's all kinds of tools. Like Kyle had mentioned something called Babel that the FBI was using as well. Like they have all these 
separate tools and things they spend a lot of money on. And, you know, if you're somebody, then you can use this to download that and report this. It's sick. It really is. Um, I want to touch three different tweets inside of this um, thread that I did today about the censorship. A lot of it is very Facebook heavy. Um, and these three really, really, really bothered me a lot. One in particular, um, it's, it's interactions with Flaherty and Facebook regarding vaccine injured people. And they don't come out and say vaccine injured people. But of course, Twitter broke my thread and I'm having a hard time finding this one. But basically what it is, is they're saying, you know, we know that these folks are telling the truth. A lot of the times what they're saying is very, um, you know, it's very uh, inflammatory, not in a bad, not necessarily in a bad way, but in a, in a way that makes uh, everybody kind of perk up because they're sharing their experiences about what they're dealing with af after being vaccinated. And Facebook is deamplifying and silencing and closing down those groups, even though they do not break the terms of service of, you know, uh, they don't break terms of service at all. And, and they're deamplifying this. Now, I know personally several people who were vaccine injured and were in support groups on Facebook and silence. I'm going to get to you in a second. Um, just as another college football player just flashed across my screen that passed away at 21. Um, these people were in, in communities together trying to work together to figure out solutions just as a support group. And they were, they were removed from Facebook at the behest of Flaherty, who is the White House, by the way. He's the White House. This is not, you know, somebody who works on the outside of the White House. This is the White House. I'm looking for the exact tweet and I'm going to find it in a second. Um, here we go. It says, as you know, in addition to removing vaccine misinformation, we have been focused on reducing the virality of content discouraging vaccines that does not contain actionable misinformation. This is often true content, which we allow at the post level because experts have advised us that it's important for people to be able to discuss both their personal experiences and concerns about the vaccine. But it can be framed as sensation, alarmist or shocking. We'll I know who wrote that. Oh, oh, yeah. We'll remove these groups, pages, and accounts when they are disproportionately promoting the sensationalized content. More on this front as we proceed to implement. And on this vein, um, Steve, if you've got something quick, just hit the 100 for me real quick, because I really do want to get to silence on this topic specifically. Yeah, one thing, Tracy, on the YouTube video that Aaron Berman was speaking on my on the thread I have, it's like number eight or nine. Yeah. That's exactly what he said. Number number 10. That's literally what he said, that they remove vaccine or COVID, even if it doesn't violate policies, because they want to control, you know, the authoritative, you know, message is how he phrased it. Which authoritative message in their in their minds means anything that's coming from the CDC or the WHO or the, exactly. you know, that's authoritative to them. Exactly. Um, as we get more into this Facebook stuff, I'm going to bring you up again, Steve, to tell your story about what happened because you are in this lawsuit again. But silenced, you can go ahead and speak right now um, and let us know what it is that you'd like to say. Wow. <laughs> I'm a little bit uh, emotional right now hearing that the truth come out about what I've experienced and, and uh, firsthand. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, and I would love to see those tweets. So, yes, I am vaccine injured. Um, one dose of Moderna. It's almost two years. Uh, pretty severe, immediate, um, anaphylactic. But anyway, that's not as important as 
what is was to follow. So um, I was in those groups, um, one Facebook groups, in one of which it was a small group. Um, and it was mostly women because um, we were sharing personal stuff of hope and healing and things like that. And um, we had connected with uh, Senator Johnson, and he was wonderful. We had a um, a Zoom call with him, and he heard our stories of the only and first first and one of the few to listen. Uh, and then he decided to go with the press conference. And so some of the vaccine injured flew out to um, Wisconsin and had a press conference with Senator Johnson. Um, and they, they were um, many in our small group. As, it was almost as soon as that press conferences, conference was over, our Facebook group was taken down. I mean, we had without any, you know, warning or anything. So and then, of course, you know, just the censorship, the misinformation, the deplatforming. You know, we've been through it just like the doctors, the gaslighting. Um, but yeah. And you know what the worst part is? Um, and I tried to stress this to a lot of the folks that I had been working with at the time nobody thinks to make themselves a home outside of that platform because it's where they found themselves as home. Right. And silence, like you, I don't know if you guys had a way to contact each other offline, but that is the most evil, terrible, disgusting action. I think from a human level that I've seen so far is ripping community away from people whose voices have been stolen, who aren't anti-vax, they've gotten the damn thing, for goodness sakes, and who are brave enough to start speaking about their experiences. Silencing you guys, in my opinion, is is one of the most criminal things that these horrible people have done. And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but a lot of these groups were thousands strong and they didn't have an outside way to speak to one another. So you've got a support group for somebody who feels like they're completely alone in the world. No doctor can tell them what's wrong with them. Nobody, a lot of the times they're being called crazy and saying that their problems are, are based around anxiety. They've got terrible health issues that they're dealing with and they found a group of people they have kingship with and like you said, can support. And then that was ripped away from them because they couldn't have this exposed to the general public around this vaccine hesitancy mantra. So you can go ahead and speak again if you want. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I wanted to make that very clear. No, I I appreciate that. And I appreciate you acknowledging it and understanding. So um, no, at the time we didn't. We were surprised that it happened. Um, And there were a couple of women in this group who were on the verge of suicide, and we were very concerned about them. So from that point on, we did um, develop outside means to communicate with one another, keep in touch and, you know, do buddy checks. Um, And then we became code talkers, right? Um, We could never use the word vaccine and injury and, you know, like, you know, the died suddenly group, you use a carrot or, you know, funny hashtag things. We, we kind of came up with it. Um, <laughs> it was just the su- surprising, you know, um, they, I, I, I'm suspended now. I'm in the fight last two days of a Facebook uh, suspension, but I'm continuously suspended. And one time was just for posting a picture of a billboard of Maddie DeGarry who was injured in the Pfizer trial for the 12 to 15 year old. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I posted that picture of a billboard 
and I was suspended from Facebook. So that's just crazy. But anyway, just another issue, if I can go back to it too, I was, I was a governor, government insider. I worked for the government for many years. I worked at Health and Human Services. I was assigned to State Department. I worked overseas. I worked on countering AQI, um, the Iranian influence, and then ISIS. So this process that was set up, um, which included targeting social media. And when I left the government, I continued because I had great relationships with the people inside. I knew the what was going on in in that, you know, international terrorism world. Um, So I was able to easily go in and find um, ISIS in um, social media posts. And I would just report them to Twitter if they were ones that, you know, were showing some violence, right? But if there was something which I found many of, which were imminent threats, um, I I sent them to the, you know my when some agency contacts, and you know if they always came back. Did you send it to Twitter? I said yes, good. And they said, well, we will make sure that we forward this to our ta- interagency task force. By the way, many of which I've been on, so I know how that inner circle works. Um, to make sure they're aware of it. You know, if this was an imminent threat and that interagency task force included the social media groups, right? Like Twitter, Facebook and others. So that was the creep, I believe, because when this whole targeting of, you know, the censoring of the 2019 election through the Trusted News Initiative and then they took on and expanded the Trusted News Initiative in 2020 with the rollout of the vaccines. And I was talking to my friends. It's like, wow, this censorship feels very much like, you know, this, the psyops that were taking place, you know, against Twitter and, you know, I'm not Twitter, apologize, you know, the, the terrorists. And I was like, how could they use a process that was set up to go after you know, these terrorists be used against Americans, but this is what it felt like. And this is what it was. So that relationship was built before that. And I think that's how they were funneled over, just my view, how they were eventually moved over to work directly with them. Anyway. Oh, it makes, makes complete sense. I mean, it makes complete sense. They just broadened their spectrum to United States citizens and, and things that aren't really violent. Um, they just basically redefined all the words and did what they were going to do. It's it's terrible. And that's why I mentioned 5DW earlier, because this really is an information war, clearly. Um, and, you know, uh, I, one time I encountered some adversarial conversation where someone was saying everything isn't political. And I, I counter everything is political, especially right now. Um, COVID is a political narrative at this point, uh, geopolitical in scope, affecting every single man, woman, child and unborn on the planet. And it is absolutely a political war. Um, they just all happen to be on the, the same side for the most part against the, the every man or the surf. And that's, that's honestly the way I feel. And it might be controversial to say, but it, it's just true. I mean, just look at what they're doing. Um, so there were a couple, thank you, Silence, for, and I'm sorry that you are going through this. And, um, thank you for doing what you did for our country as well. Um, you've been an asset to the space and I appreciate you very much. Um, 
So the other couple that really floored me, one of them was interesting. So a lot of the times when we go through these, we get discovery and then we find other threads. And this is another thread. The Jill Biden, Jill Biden, J-I-L-L Biden, her press office was going back and forth with Twitter, requesting that they remove what they called a deceptively edited video, which I think was a parody video. I haven't been able to locate it yet, but it's basically a parody video of Jill Biden. Twitter pushed back and said, no, we're not going to release. We're not going to do this. And then asked them to then, then Jill Biden's office came back and said, please look at this again. We think this violates your terms of service one and two. We don't understand why you're not seeing it. And Twitter came back again and said, no, 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 um, it doesn't. We're good. And then they pushed back again and then they brought in Flaherty. And I'm only pointing this out because now we have the first lady involved and her office involved with direct ask for censorship on, on, a, um, on a social media platform, which we only got because they copied in Rob Flaherty on the on the on the email chain. So this is how the the, the ball of yarn gets untangled. And, you know, I'm not sure. Can I say to everybody out there? Yes, they're providing everything responsive. No, I'm sure there are things that aren't responsive, um, that are responsive, that they've held back because it's just the nature of these things. However, the first argument that they made in this lawsuit, well, this is privileged. The second that a United States government official emails a private company that's no longer privileged information. If the White House special, the White House general counsel is talking to, I don't know, um, a congressman, they can claim privilege. But if you're talking to outside outside companies um, that are private companies, you can't use a privilege blanket to hide your um, to hide your stuff. The other thing tellingly that came out to me in this is Rob Flaherty is basically acting like he's the CEO or the head of trust and safety at all at, at Facebook. When he's asking them and demanding that that they do what he asks, it's you guys that Kyle and Steve, you can probably attest to this and even you uh, name that the the hubris that drips off this guy as he demands Facebook provide him with information, demands Facebook take action on things that he wants. Um, and then when they don't respond to him in what he would consider a timely manner snarky snarky responses like those weren't rhetorical questions like who in the hell does this guy think he is Tr like did you read <laughs> Go ahead, yeah Kyle. tracy it's kind of funny because it, it reminds me of what you were talking about a little bit earlier when we were talking about uh you know that it's really dangerous for our people to be deposed and you know they're facing threats and all this other kind of thing and the natural question is it's like okay well what threats and they're like well we don't have any threats but uh but we could have threats because we feel as though those could be real and so when you have people that are going to operate in this very like emotional space like this, it's, it's really, it's, I feel like it's really new to, to see people act like their feelings are somehow everybody else's business. And, and it obviously spills over into a lot of different facets of our society right now, but it is tell you, it is kind of like the cadre of people that are involved in this, this, um, you know, government at this point. And like, in a lot of ways, you just see people that, that it doesn't have to have a factual basis, that critical thinking has kind of gone out the window. And that didn't used to be the case. Like, especially if you go meet the older cadre of people that are, let's say over 50 that are doing this type of work, they would be completely appalled that that would be the answer you would give. Like if you showed up and you said, I have uh, threats, but there's no threats, like go away now. Like you don't even get to go. You're not even at the table anymore, but instead these people well, are like, running the table. <laughs> Right. And this is what happened. But I'm going to segue this into something completely off topic, not to stay on it, but it's important. Kyle, this is what happened to you and Steve, too, 
with people reporting what they considered to be like actionable requests for action on J6 cases, right? It's the same thing. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, no, no question. And Kyle was was better at uh, stamping a lot of those out at the origin. But you know, when they did filter down to me, you know, there would be tips that were anonymous, and there would be uh, no uh, facial recognition or cell phone GPS data that would uh, correspond to the person being there. And it'll be because it was an anonymous tip, we couldn't even prosecute it. Um, and we were still being told you need to go interview these people. So it's it's just there. The, the controls behind it are, are completely gone. And I think a lot of it also is just people who are in a position to make uh, decisions and, uh, and, and give directives or just don't even know the law. I mean, it's just outside of even January 6th. I mean, I was talking recently with a, a friend in another division where there was an allegation made uh, anonymously online that somebody was using a password on the dark web of NAMBLA. So North American Man Boy Love Association and the executive management within the division wanted to order a full surveillance and open up a full case on the person based on an anonymous allegation about a password usage. And they just- In- that's insane. It, it's just insane. It really is. And, um, to, to, you know, to everyone out there, and uh, Steve, I- I'm going to keep you here just for a second. And then if you have a question in the audience and you've requested to speak and you have a question raise your hand or, or put the little hand up. You can hit the heart button and put your hand up if you have a question. If you have a statement or something you want to say, we'll go to that at the um, at the end. But, um, you know, I forgot my train of thought now of what I was going to say. Damn it. Um, Steve, <laughs> Steve, I wanted you to tell people about your um, your experience with Facebook. Oh, I remember. Real quick. I just wanted to list off the places I've been banned from so that I can tell you guys how I sympathize. I just recently got my account back on Twitter. I've been banned from Facebook. I've been banned from PayPal. I've been banned from Venmo. I was banned from Patreon. Um, where else? I was banned from Reddit. Um, and I, th- I never had a LinkedIn account. But I've been banned from basically everywhere, including payment processors. So I get it. I totally do. Um, I don't talk about it ad, ad nauseum because, in my opinion, for me personally, there's so much work to do um, that – I want to get that work done um, and not so much talk about my censorship issues because I worked around it, damn it, and I'll continue to work around it if they keep doing it to me. But, Steve, how did this happen to your wife? Can you tell that story? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So uh, when I became public that week, um, I I didn't have any social media presence at all, um, and my wife had a Facebook account. And then a few months before this, I became a known whistleblower. Her Facebook account got hacked. And she'd gone through all this uh, rigmarole within Facebook to have it restored to her and just basically had uh, – my wife's Ukrainian, so she put her name using the Cyrillic alphabet. So unless you uh, speak or read that language, you wouldn't know uh, what her first name is. Um, and she only uses her Facebook account to send private messages and uh, and just like have pictures. So we had a, uh, a, a, fa- a family friend reach out to her, send her a message that a woman from Moms for Liberty – uh, wanted to get in touch with me. Um, That's I a had, terrorist group, Steve, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Uh, um, I, I, I can't confirm or deny whether or not I have sat on the surveillance uh, of school board meetings. But I can tell you that I have been inside of a school board meeting and uh, had spoken out against uh, masks. So they, uh, you know, they knew me and they had video footage of YouTube of me and they said, hey, he's one of us. We want to help him out. So my wife uh, sent a message to this woman uh, saying, hey, look, Steve doesn't have Facebook, doesn't have anything. 
Um, he can't, he's not speaking out right now, but it would be great if your membership could just, in, you know, share his message out with the, with their social networks. So she sends that message after we got a church. 30 minutes later, uh, she, uh, she got a notification from Facebook that her Facebook account had been suspended for violating community standards. Uh, she appealed it immediately and, uh, the following day got the notification that it was permanently banned. So, uh, for nothing th- public, this is DMs, no, understand. It's pri- a private message. And I mean, look, I've said it a hundred times, like my last name is friend. She literally said, I'm Steve friend's wife and the algorithm got her or the actual eyeballs on it got her. So and, you make your own mind on that. And the, the worst thing too, just to segue off of that is that they, Flaherty was actually in the discovery release looking for policy on what they were doing with WhatsApp. Now, WhatsApp is being used by the FBI to funnel information back and forth to judges in Florida, by the way. They're using WhatsApp to send over affidavits in in, in criminal uh, activity against a former sitting president. Yes, that's how they sent the affidavit to the judge in the Trump Mar-a-Lago raid, I'm just saying. But they're trying to censor WhatsApp, which is encrypted, supposedly, point to point. And Facebook goes through lengths or he goes through hoops to try and tell them we don't see the conversations that people are having. However, we're, you know, we're taking action on people that forward too many things or forward things a number of times, or we're taking action by putting up these authoritative, as name said, sources pinned to the top. Go ahead, Kyle. Um, I'm just going to talk about something that uh, Steve is probably a little bit less able to talk to just because of some of the agreements they have, but I, I but I don't have those agreements. So um, uh, on top of his wife being censored from Facebook, she was also let go from her job. And I, we talked a little bit briefly uh, when I first got on here about mission creep, and I want to kind of just make this all kind of tie together for people. Um, the, the sort of overall um, – capabilities that are being pushed out by the intelligence community, whether it be, uh, you know, DHS or FBI or, or, you know, the agency or whoever else, State Department and so on. Like, it's so pervasive that it would blow your mind. Um, I just had a whistleblower in my, uh, that was hitting me up, who's from my little group that was telling me about Bronze Griffin, which is obviously what we're talking about here with this, uh, Missouri v. Biden stuff and, and the sort of program, the types of leads that were getting sent out. And he said a lot of them were just First Amendment protected activities. There was some general, what we call domestic terrorism stuff. And I'm going to, I'm going to get this to Steve's wife's thing. So Steve's wife worked for a logistics company that did a lot of work in Eastern Europe and moved around uh, fertilizers and agricultural stuff. And if people don't know this, like that's one of the most heavily, let's say, eyeballed industries in the United States when it comes to domestic terrorism. And the reason why is Oklahoma City, the fact that a massive amount of fertilizer was able to be used into an, uh, an improvised explosive. Farm equipment can also be used, what's called dual use. So you can use it for improvised type military operations. And so, you know, the FBI has what we call tripwires. Tripwires is just you go out and you find somebody who owns a big ag store and you go introduce yourself to the general manager and whoever's the sales guy and say, hey, if you get big orders, like we'd love to know about it, like especially if you feel anything weird or someone comes in and they don't make sense and they don't look like an ag person trying to buy something like, let us know, like, here's my card. That's a tripwire. It's, it's very on the level. It's a good tool to be used. There's nothing nefarious about the idea of it. But the problem is, is that industry is so well, it's so well connected because of what it is. The fact that Steve's wife lost her job for no reason when she had, you know, it was an expanding company and they literally told her, Hey, we're expanding our company and we're going to have to let you go. By the way, we're going to give you six months severance for kind of like a, um, you know, like a lower to mid-level position. That's really wild stuff. And like, I can't help but think that there's a, a thumb on the scale of that where the FBI made an easy phone call or maybe that, that, uh, 
that particular person goes, uh, you know what? We have a lot of FBI contacts. That's something that we normally do. This would look really bad for us. And, um, we're, we're going to go ahead and part ways with this woman. So it can not just, you know, screw up your life and your ability to be part of a support network like Silence was talking about and, you know, disrupt your social and some of your, your uh, emotional support. But like they're, they're playing with people's financial futures. They are going and cutting them out of the marketplace the same way Tracy was talking about getting cut out of Venmo and PayPal, like in Patreon, these support platforms. Like this is a pervasive effort to, and the word is cancel. We've used it many times in, in, in other things, but I haven't heard it tonight. Like, but the government canceling people is a totally different animal, and it's way scarier, in my opinion. Agreed. It's terrifying. But we have to keep going, and we are, and you are, and he is, and it's amazing that you are. And we need to support folks that do that. We really do. Um, I'm steadfastly committed to it. Um, and we also have God on our side, so that doesn't hurt either, you know? So <laughs> there's that. All correct. Um, okay. Yeah, so Kingmaker, you have a question. Just hit 100 if you have a question. Okay. Nice fire has a question. All right, go ahead, nice fire. Hi, thank you. I just will be so brief. It's disgusting. Um, thank you for bringing me up. I just want to say I live in a town of approximately 5,200 people. My husband still responds with the fire department. I haven't responded. I have a new child. Um, our pager goes off now way more than it ever did before. And what we're hearing is, you know, the announcement come on and it's such and such address, um, chest pain, difficulty breathing, cardiac arrest, diff breather calls, and the ages are well below 60. And it's become constant. It came during 2020. It came during COVID, but it's worse now. And, you know, my husband just tried to bring back a 41-year-old woman who was a professional person, no drinking, no drugs, no cigarettes, and she's dead from two days ago in front of her children and her husband. And we're seeing this in a boots-on-the-ground effort and it, it, we're powerless, uh, especially since I live in a blue state. Um, you know, God forbid anybody say anything. They just, on the NBC Connecticut, recently started as of yesterday to talk about it. Oh, we have 18 cases, they said, blah, blah, myocarditis in younger children. We have way more than 18. I know three people myself, and I don't leave my house. So... The vaccine injuries are, <laughs> they're way more than we know. They have to be. I, I know. I keep on saying that you can probably throw a rock and hit a vaccine right. injured person in this country. And it's all coming to a head now. I mean, I don't know how long they're going to be able to continue to pretend that this stuff is right. happening. And the sad I, thing I, is, is um, I got my vaccine early um, because I was still considered part of the first responder community. I was fine after the first vaccine, other than a blasting headache. My second vaccine, I felt fine. Didn't even know I had it. Three days later, I kept feeling like somebody was doing acupuncture on my heart. My husband being a paramedic was like, all right, what the hell's going on here? And I was like, I'm not sure. Maybe I pulled a muscle, la la. It lasted for eight weeks. And I did report it to my doctor. But unfortunately, because of COVID protocols and lockdowns, 
um, they offered me a video conference. And I said, what are you going to send a 12 lead up route to, you know, I'll go to the ER if I'm having a heart attack. I happened to be lucky enough that I had um, a prescription for of steroid. I just started taking that and aspirin and drinking Gatorade. And it, it, it lasted for eight weeks. It's terrible. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, don't be. Um, you know, I'm just lucky that I had the wherewithal and the, I guess, materials on hand to deal with it. Um, I did not vaccinate my six-year-old, but I have two sons in the military who are vaccinated, one who is having trouble. So it, to me, this is the biggest, you know, the fact that they, like, you know, I'm not afraid to say it. I would say it right to, you know, any government official. This is a bioweapon. We know it. It probably shouldn't have gotten out. Who knows why it did? But now the treatment for the bioweapon seems worse. And that's just the way it is. Yeah, and it's funny because um, even even now, like we went from it's a vaccine that'll that'll, you know, make it so that nobody catches this ever again to, oh, if you catch it, you won't be too sick. And, you you know, you will stay out of the hospital right. to like a glorified therapeutic that doesn't even act in a therapeutic right. manner. It does the exact opposite. Th- thanks for sharing your story. Nice. I appreciate you coming. Yeah, I appreciate it. If you, anybody wants to hear stories, go to your local fire department and ask them. I mean, we're running our asses off with this. Terrible. So thank you so much. Thanks. Yep. Have a great night. You too. Thank you. Um, Mr. Nice, Mr. Nice Guy. Mr. Nice Guy is here. He has a question. Hey, everyone. Uh, Mr. Nice Guy. I uh, do a talk show, and I'm very honored to be here. I'm glad we're uh, getting together like this. Um, if you get a chance, follow me. Be careful for my opinions. And uh, I guess what I want to ask is, you know, when was the last time we saw a group of people advocating that it's a private company and that should somehow pr- protect them um, with their opinions? You know, the last thing I can think of is when Democrats didn't want certain demographics to shop with them. You know, if you were a person of color, you couldn't shop for that same justification that we're a private company or a private business and we somehow have that right. What I think we have to be really careful about is trying to get the government involved in regulating private companies also. What we don't want to do is to put some law that's not ingrained in a constitutional uh, constitutional amendment out that can be manipulated and, uh, you know, turned against us. Because nowadays, everything that the left produces is uh, at the base on claims of discrimination. And if we start letting private companies be regulated by government, then what we're going to have is, you know, them making excuses that speech is violence and it's discrimination. So I think that's something we really have to be careful about. And, you know, from my experience, I've seen uh, two or three different things as far as freedom of speech being violated by um, by platforms. And I'll tell you an example um, on election night in 2020. Facebook prohibited the words from saying that Trump won different areas in the nation. Like if you tried to type Trump won Pennsylvania, it would not allow you to post those comments. And this is another example of, of control. But, you know, the term itself, and I'll wrap this up, but the term itself, misinformation, to me, Seems like another uh, CIA psyop, you know, a conspiracy theorist, misinformation. You know, these are little words and terms they put together to discredit anybody with a different opinion. 
And I think this should be something to fear. If I had one recommendation, I would say that we need to go back and look at these cases where, and this is the one everybody remembers, is that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. If you actually go look at that case, it had nothing to do with a fire in a theater. It was actually about protesting the draft at the time. And the judge, in his closing argument or in his statement, actually said, um, you know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. I think we need to revisit that kind of stuff and make sure that everybody has a voice, whether it's tough, mean, or even discriminatory in some ways. Well, the First uh, Amendment isn't, isn't there to protect nice things that people say. It's there to protect the things that people would find controversial. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the key here. I think, you know, if we really wanted to protect free speech, I think the best thing we could do as a country is to dismantle the CIA. They have a, they have a think tank and they brainstorm all days on a way to discredit the average American where we can't have a voice. Cause you know, there might be a thousand people and one person might have the right idea. And if that person is small in voice or small in popularity, that will never get to the surface, especially when you have discredited stuff like conspiracy theorists or misinformation. And, you know, there's there's other nuances that they throw out there at us now, too. But, you know, I'm really proud of these kind of Twitter spaces and I'm impressed with Elon Musk. And I'm, I'm really glad to be part of this. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for coming up here. I appreciate it. Um, I think Kristen was next. Hi. Hey. Well, so I was just going to piggyback off of what Name was saying with all of the intelligence community inside of these social media companies, because if they're so pervasive on the outside, why do they need all of these people on the inside? So Paul Sperry put out a tweet this morning talking about how the, it says, unreported in Twitter files, censorship, censorship uh, scandal is direct messaging, which is supposed to be private. Sensitive sources communicate privately with me and other journos through Twitter. DMs, including FBI uh, whistleblowers, was James Baker monitoring P- uh, DMs. So... That was my question is, was that why they were put in there was to monitor all the DMs hey, do you and m- get around search warrants? Yeah. Hey, Kristen. So, I mean, to, it's usually much more simple than anybody wants to make it. You know, like I've always said, it's not a cabal of people that we saw in the X-Files, like sitting in the dark room, smoking cigarettes and screwing over the world. Um, it's It's probably much less insidious than that. And it makes it much more dangerous because of how it plays out. So, so many of these officials are, are probably coming out of these government jobs. They're, uh, they're retiring out of a position that, that's a good position and they're able to do it early. And then, you know, they naturally walk into where there's going to be somewhere that's going to be able to offer them cash for the, either their experience or their access. That's going to be the two things that are going to be the most important as they go look for these jobs. And then uh, I had Seb Gorka ask me once, he was like, you know, is someone over there calling them up and saying, hey, do this thing for us? I don't think they're being tasked. I think that if you spend 30 years in the DOJ, and being around the FBI the way that someone like Jim Baker was, then you don't need to be told because those are your friends. Like that's what you're talking about when you're texting each other, what you're pissed about and what's going on in the world. So your worldview is very isolated to what goes on inside the place that you've really been institutionalized by. So you're a company man, whether you work for that company more, you know, or not. And so 
you know, there is some back and forth and I've, I've kind of uh, bugged Matt Taibbi about it, whether or not uh, the DMs were being uh, monitored in a big way. And from what he could see, that wasn't the case. They were occasionally sharing some that were like legitimately uh, being asked about for uh, terrorist purposes, national security stuff, threats that went over to DOD, things like that. But from, you know, the vast majority of it, it doesn't have to happen that way. You could have much more banal evil by just sitting there and thinking like, hey, I'm going to I'm on team DOJ FBI, whether I work there or not. And I think that's much more common. Right. But like, what's, was it Steve that was saying that his wife that never used it and she just DM'd a friend and she was banned immediately from Facebook. So it's like. Who's, yeah, so, who's kind of monitoring Yeah, so that. you got to wonder, like, is someone um, actually being tasked with it? That's the difference that we're talking about, whether they're being specifically tasked to do something or whether they're primed to do that thing because they, they're they on the, the same team. And and I would argue that I, I think they were primed, and I think that's what we saw in a lot of the Twitter file drops that were kind of showing that they had been conditioned to the point where, yes, they were doing they were taking taskings, and there was, you know, spreadsheets that came over with thousands of names, and it's like, you know, reply handled. But on top of that, what we also have is once you've created a culture where we've brought you in and, and now Kristen is part of my team. And you know, when I, when I tell Kristen stuff that she does it now, she's also trying to like proactively help me out because, because we're buddies and you're on my team. And if that's the case, then they don't need to be asked for everything. And it makes the job much easier. That's a really good source to run, by the way, someone that you can task for good info, but also does things um, that are legal, that they're allowed to do that helps out your position. And, and th- that's the relationship that I'm seeing from this stuff. And so I, I could be wrong and I'm happy to have someone else kind of weigh in on it, but that's what it looked like from, from my end. I'm being told that there was a Twitter files drop where we could see that everybody had access to DMs, Kyle, whether they use it or not is a different story. And that's Twitter internal <laughs> staff. That w- that's correct. That's the um, part uh, where they were uh, like kind of shadow banning Dan Bongino. And there was one other person you could see on that screenshot. I forget who put that out, that they had access to click on Bongino's DMs. So they, they obviously have. Yeah, I think that's, you know, yeah, that's the, so the question was, is did they, were they forwarding over to law enforcement, like with direct monitoring, or was that internally where they were like, we don't like Bongino and we're going to get rid of him? Do, do you know what the, mm-hmm. what, what was, I'm asking the question, sorry. It was the internal team. I don't think that it was, um, you know, direct action. It didn't look like it was direct action from outside name. Yeah, no, no. They it, that was from Twitter's end that they had that uh, access, but there's nothing we've seen that they're actually sharing that with law enforcement besides maybe the obvious stuff of if you know monitoring terrorist activity or whatever. Right. So that was my specific question when I was asking. Like I said, when I when I was pinging Matt about it, my question was: Was it being shared, and was it being shared with like questions without a search warrant? And his answer was that he didn't see that. But internal monitoring, like I think that's. I think that's a no-brainer. If you're sending uh, DMs on Twitter, like even right now, and you think that's a secret, then you're a fool. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I only say things that like, if I share my phone number, I assume my phone number will be doxxed at some point because I've shared it with people and I've told people they could hit me up on Signal. And occasionally I get really weird signals from people that I have no idea who they are. So like, if you think that those are private, like you've lost your mind. Like that is what we've proven so far this year. Thanks, Kristen. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, you. and with the whole WhatsApp thing, I mean, that you're expectation is that's completely private and which obviously it wasn't no it was i mean the facebook came back multiple times and said there is no way for for us to see the content of that communication um they they made that very clear over and over again they couldn't see the content but they could take action on what multiple forwards of a post or pin a chat bot or use a chat bot to to provide information and the white house was actually angry 
that they couldn't see the contact of the or the content of those messages. So at least from an end to end encryption standpoint, I think it's okay. But remember, WhatsApp, you're talking to like your friend, your family, a small group of people. Like I said in my thread, it's almost like they want to be inside your living room to make sure that you don't have an, uh, vaccine hesitancy promoting posts or information coming at you on a private messaging app that is outside of the social media sort of stratosphere. Um, so thanks for coming up. I appreciate you. Thank you. We've got, uh, let's see. I'm just going to go in order on the thing now, I guess. Um, Nikki? Sorry, I was I was trying to share an article I just happened upon, which was um, actually from June of 2013 with a program called PRISM. And I just found this by accident. So if anybody heard about it, it'd be interesting. The headline reads, um, secret program gives NSA Facebook or, or FBI backdoor access to Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft data. Um, and again, that was from 2017 and it's kind of inter- or 2013. But anyway, what I was going to bring up was, um, I wanted to kind of get opinions about when you, he- when you guys hear that the vaccine is approved what do you think the the main perception of that is within the public they think it's FDA approved but it's not so yes you're absolutely 100% and I was I actually yesterday I had called Pfizer because according to the when I was reading the FDA document when they said it was going to be approved I thought it looked like the brand name was going to be approved by 2025 and everything is kind of just mud. It's just muddied, muddied in the, muddied in the water. You can't tell what's what. And I think it's designed that way to be confusing. So I called Visor. It took me 40 minutes to get to somebody that could answer the question. And she was very clear about it. And she said, the brand name community is the approved uh, two series that you get basically like the first one that came out, which is pretty much irrelevant at this point. And it's only approved for 12 years, age, 12 years of age and older. So anything that anybody's getting from 12 years and under and any booster, none of it is approved. It's all still EUA. And the interesting thing is this week, Biden is supposed to renew the emergency, supposed to uh, extend the emergency declaration for, you know. And and just breaking, by the way, just breaking to your point, the Pentagon just dropped the vaccine mandate for troops. Just to let you guys know. I know. And I just saw that and I was like, I was, that's why I was like, I was, I, I wanted to come on here and be like, what was going on? Because I, I knew that he's supposed to renew This now it would be quite a shock if he said, you know, we're going to end the emergency. And once they end the emergency, anything, of course, you know, like it's gone, like the vaccines, the drugs, the remdesivir, anything that's just under EUA. Yep. Man, I would love to see that. Yeah, we we (laughs) all would 100 percent. And you know what? Um, Kudos to you and kudos to everyone out there who takes the time to make those phone calls and to sit on the phone to get the answer for themselves. 
if only we had all done that in the early stages, we wouldn't be in this position right now. Because when the federal government misrepresented that the vaccine was FDA approved, we had a, a massive issue. As a matter of fact, Uncover DC, I'm the editor in chief there. We covered this at length. We did a number of articles. We had military whistleblowers who were actually going up and demanding that they be injected with community, and they didn't have the vaccine community. They didn't have it. So it wasn't in production. And there are material differences between that vaccine and the EU. I didn't want to call it a vaccine. That shot and the EUA-approved one. So thank you, Nikki. Um, Kyle, real quick, and then James, you're next. Unless, Nikki, you have something else. I was just going to add one of the things I asked when I was on the phone with her is I wanted to clarify that there were actually several different formulations that they used beside before they decided to go with the brand name um, that they're getting out now. And she was saying anything that isn't community isn't isn't technically like. They're trying to say it's approved, but it's not because it has a labeling, so I have to go by that. But yep. there were there were different formulations for the same one. I don't know if people know that either. Yeah, if you get into the real nitty gritty of what was released, you'll see that. But they they completely obfuscated it, a hundred percent. Nikki, you're great. Hey, Thank you so much. Yeah, for that. just a, a compliment, Nick, Nikki. So you're representing exactly what is supposed to be done in this country when it comes to critical thinking, and it seems to be sorely lacking. And there's someone, you know, there's obviously a significant entity or a significant uh, movement to stop that sort of thing. It's one of the reasons why I, I connected with Tracy when I did is there's a couple things that are going on. You, what you've done is you've honed in on something that is very precise and you are trying to be very accurate. And so when they say that this is FDA authorized, that sounds really good to a lot of people. So they're on board, but they don't know the difference between authorized and approved, which are differences. And so if we are not precise and accurate with this language, which is really where we're at right now, then you get into this scenario where you go and you accept something that you don't really understand what you've agreed to. I actually sat on the phone for two hours while I was driving down from Albuquerque because I got called up to the field office and I called the state health department in New Mexico. And I did the same exact thing you did, except I asked them where in New Mexico is the FDI approved um, shot being administered? Because I was being told I had to go get it. So I wanted to just at least have the answer. And the answer is it's never given anywhere. They didn't give it anywhere. And then they said, sir, they're the same. It's like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And she said, I'm reading right from the from the paper. And they literally read from talking points. And that's what we've lost in this country, the ability to do critical thinking. You make your own decision. If you choose to go get that shot, so be it. Like, I'm not mad at anybody. And I don't think Tracy is either. You can choose to nope. do anything you want to do. I always tell people, as long as you're not using my money, if you want to go cut your tongue and turn it into like a fork and look like a snake, like knock yourself out. If you want to get elf ears, like who cares? Whatever it is that you want to do with your own money in the medical community and a doctor's willing to go, go for it. But don't try to force it on anybody else. And then don't stifle the information, which is really where we're at right now, because a lot of people would have had access to the things that we're talking about if what you just said right now, Nikki, was not deemed to be either disinformation and dangerous or misinformation and misleading, which is all crap. It's just information and you get to make your own choice because guess what? Freedom's a little dangerous, folks. They can't give um, a, va a, 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 me a medical procedures cannot be done without informed consent. And that's what you're talking about, Kyle, informed consent. It has to be there. It's, it has to be there. I think, and, and doctors. Yeah, more over that. I think there's a lot of doctors that would probably be able to op like appropriately argue that there is a myth of informed consent because the odds that a doctor, a physician who has spent you know, a decade of professional training from undergrad to, to, you know, their med school and then go through a residency of some kind, sometimes a fellowship afterwards is going to be able to convey to you the actual risk reward and the things that are at stake in a few minutes. It's insane. It's not going to happen. And that's why I'm such a big fan of things like patient advocates, which we don't really do very well, 
But a patient advocate is somebody who knows what the hell they're talking about that goes in, has your best interest at heart, listens to the information with an understanding, and then is able to give you a good decision. If we don't have patient advocates, like informed consent is a myth, I think, in the traditional setting. And I used to work in an emergency room where doctors would constantly go in and try to give somebody the, the, the skinny on what was going on, but they're legally required to say certain things, and the information is not easily digested by regular people. So informed consent is a, you know, that's the standard, but I don't think you're ever going to meet it. I, I think it's just one of those made-up words that we've come on because it, uh, it, it sounds good, but it's not real. Especially not when you have a, an untested, brand-new, novel gene therapy that nobody knows what the hell will happen if they inject it into you. How do you give informed consent for a product that's being trialed on millions of people across the world? You, you can't. Um, who was next? Oh, Jason. Uh, James, sorry. James, you're next. Hey, thanks, Tracy. I do have a question for Kyle, but I want to start from here and welcome you back to Twitter. I haven't had a chance to talk to you in like three years because of that. But, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure that you know that Jason Fick, that's uh, up here, uh, which is kind of strange. I actually came up to say this. He's the leading expert in the entire country on Section 230. Um, so if you're not familiar with that, that is the guy. Like, he's the guy at the central pivot point of Section 230. Um, and, and so I just want to make sure you are aware of that. Oh, I know Jason. Yes, I've covered his okay. cases and um, what happened to him. I've had him on the podcast, and I believe we've written on it as well. Um, yeah, I'm going to give him a second um, to talk about that. We're kind of weaving all over the place. So yeah, I, said, I, know. I said to Jason, like, I, I love Jason, and he's very passionate about what he does for good reason. It's been his damn life for the past gosh knows how many years. What happened to him, he was probably one of the first ones to experience a Facebook destruction the likes of which yep. many people have never seen before. However, Jason can talk about 2.30 for 17 <laughs> hours if you let him. And I refuse I to let Jason take the space in 2.30 hell, okay? So I'm just saying, Jason, I'll give you five, I'll give you a couple minutes to talk about your, your case, but it's definitely not tailored for where we're sitting right now. So that's <laughs> I totally agree with you, Tracy. We've talked to Jason so many times. But let me get my let me get to my question for Kyle before Jason does dominate the mic. Um, so, Kyle, you and I have previously spoken that what we see throughout the this case that we're talking about, Missouri v. Biden, as well as uh, the Twitter files, is that what we see is the FBI basically cultivated a source. That's that's how they did it. They brought him on the team and all of that. But my question beyond that is, how do you think the FBI became the front man for the entire government? I mean, what, what people aren't talking about is this is not just the FBI. This is DHS. This is uh, CDC. This is uh, like you name the three letter agency and they were running operations through the FBI to censor information or censor Americans. How do you think they became that front man for the entire operation? It's speculative. I think that uh, they were in a natural position to do that because of the InfraGuard program that we have in our, our office, the public, um, it's called public sector. And there's two parts of it. It's under the, the, um, the division that's called the, uh, the Office of National Intelligence or whatever the hell is. I'll have to go look. I'll, I'll set it up and I'll send you guys a, a link for it. But essentially, like the FBI does a lot of community outreach to businesses and we do businesses that are both military and, um, and technology based because there's the possibility of those being abused. And I think a lot of this happened uh, post-2016 is kind of what we're seeing there, the whole allegations of, of Russian collusion and so on. Um, it, it led the FBI to try to, like, tax its network. And what networks does it have? It has a source network. That's obviously the case for 
criminal and, and national security reporting structures. But we also had this private sector engagement that was ongoing. And I'm not confident. I'm, I mean, I don't know if DHS does the same thing. I don't know if uh, State Department even has a reason to do something like that. I know the CIA does it, uh, but they're not going to talk about it because that's national. That's national resource group. And if you're not familiar with what um, NR does, then, uh, you know, go look them up. They have a very small Wikipedia you can see. But the CIA is operating domestically, doing the same thing, cultivating sources of people that travel. But they're looking specifically overseas. The FBI has the domestic intelligence mission. That's their job. And um, I think it's a terrible job. And I think it's a job that probably shouldn't even exist at all. That's my personal opinion. And there's plenty of people who think that's, that's true as well, including people who did the work. Um, and, and if you want to jump on my podcast, shameless plug, but I did an interview with George Hill who, who made that exact argument. And, uh, and he was a former NSA guy and a former FBI uh, intel person. So I think because they had the existing infrastructure, it was easy. And then that's how you got that weird comment uh, that, uh, that Taibbi named his last piece with, the, with that hideous picture of a hairy belly button with a, with a bird on it, that they became the belly button. And people were like, well, what the hell does the belly button mean? Well, the belly button is the umbilical. That's the umbilical contact. That's the way that you, you know, that you support this new baby that they've kind of grown. The baby is the, uh, the military or the information industrial complex that they're in the process of. So that's my take on it. Steve may have a different one and they may have another one as well, but that's, that's my guess from what it looks like and, and what exists. Um, Steve, you can go ahead. You have your hand raised and I'm sure it's pertinent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's another uh, big tech component to this that I really haven't heard discussed a lot and that's Amazon web services. Amazon Web Services houses all of the you know, the government's uh, storage capabilities. So you know you could you could go back to who's really pulling the strings on this. They have they don't need you know they ha- they have all of our secrets that, that the government says that it has. The, Amazon has them as well. They could easily be involved in this and and using essentially and pressuring politicians oh. to uh, to to utilize the the arm of the of the. Uh, federal law enforcement, which the FBI is certainly not afraid of, of grabbing headlines and being, you know, forward facing and, and being a front for that. Uh, unlike the CIA, you know, the, the FBI loves the headlines. Um, and, and then you, you have them going out and, and developing these relationships and cultivating these, these actions, uh, which then, you know, just related to coronavirus. I mean, you have uh, social media networks that are stomping down on people saying, hey, hey, you don't need to wear a mask. You can go out. Uh, well, we're going to we're going to keep everybody home. And uh, and who you know, what did we all do? We all sat home and uh, we ordered uh, all of our goods off of Amazon. I have to jump in here on AWS because um, a lot of people might not remember, but AWS was the reason Parler came down. Parler was hosted on Amazon Web Services like very many huge, mass- massive companies are. And when when J6 happened. They pulled Parler down because apparently, allegedly, Parler was responsible for all this planning and plotting on, on January 6th. And today, to segue back into the discovery drop we got, we learned that um, Flaherty – I'm taking my dogs out, sorry. Flaherty was actually saying to Facebook, you were basically in charge you, – you, all of this plotting on January 6th happened on your platform. So why didn't they meet the same fate as Parler did? Why? That's my question. Hey, and I want to—I I wanted to complete the the thought that I had for James. Um, it's the intelligence branch, which is one of the branches the FBI has in their senior executive structure, with an ex, uh, executive assistant director who runs that. And then the two pieces are the Office of Partner Engagement is one of the big uh, branches underneath that, or one of the you know sub departments. And then the Office of the Private Sector. And so both of those, I think, are the two areas that where where we would see that engagement. I just wanted to be very specific about since I I forget I fail at our org chart because it's really complicated and it always changes. 
I'm so glad Steve and Kyle are here because they're huge assets to the conversation. Um, thanks, James. I'm booting you now. Bye, James. I miss you. We'll talk soon, I'm sure. DM me. Um, <laughs> okay, Jason, you're on a tight <laughs> leash. No, I'm just oh, kidding. <laughs> I love it. Not 17 hours, 5.5 hours is my, like, the highest so far. But, now James always makes me blush. But, yeah, so, Tracy, you know how long I've been at this, this thing. And it, it's basically been a matter of moving a mountain. That's why this hasn't been fixed. I mean, Section 230, everybody's talking about repealing it with the legislation. And the reality is it's not really that broken. Um, the truth of the matter is, and, and I'm talking generalities. I'm not talking about – I've gotten way past trying to explain the, the, the technicals of it anymore because it's just too much. But the general problem is, is that the courts took what the legislature wrote and they turned it into something that it isn't. And, you know, I, I've been at it against Facebook and for, what, four and a half years now, and we've actually rendered the argument down so – so simple that it, it's it's one of those things it's becoming a, a matter of like as we're about to petition the supreme court we're now saying that the lower courts it's a willful disregard for their duties their oath to the constitution i mean it, it's willful because everything from day one about my lawsuit was i was trying to hold facebook accountable for its own conduct it's real simple that's that's what every case would normally do is you would go after them for what they did and all of the California courts kept saying is you can't treat them as a publisher and they can't be held accountable for their own content or excuse me, their own conduct. And we've been saying over and over and over again, well, now if the amicus from Ted Cruz, uh, Paxton, DOJ, Hawley, they're all saying the same thing. This is 230C1 doesn't apply to conduct like any. And yet all of it is being covered under 230C1, including my case. That's why it was thrown out. So it's a very simple question that the Supreme Court has. And it was interesting because, of course, Gonzalez, right, which is currently in front of the Supreme Court, they made a really interesting distinction I think everybody should know about. They said that, well, Paxton actually cited it in his amicus. They said that um, Gonzalez isn't, isn't in there uh, holding them uh, responsible for what the content was that was recommended but for the recommendation itself, it's a subtle distinction. It's that the has, act of recommending, not the content they recommended. Correct. And that is entirely what the Supreme Court has to figure out in Gonzalez and in the other one, because the recommendation is content provision. It, it, it's development of that content. And the thing is, they're trying to draw some arbitrary line as to what is content provision and what isn't content provision. They did it in my case. And of course, that's where we got fed up, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I believe you know, Tracy, but some people in this group know, but we pivoted. When they didn't let me you know, have a single day in court, it's a deprivation of due process rights because the government gave these companies, whether they're working with them or not working with them or whatever, the statute gives them the, the ability to take your life, liberty, or property. Now, of course, they can't take your life, but they can take your liberty and property, and you can't get a day in court. That's a straight-up violation of the Fifth Amendment. So we filed a constitutional challenge, Just right? Just to, to let everybody know who may not be familiar with your story, they took your livelihood away completely. They took everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they took 38 million fans in total. They, they wiped out a business that was – I was once larger than BuzzFeed. I mean, like – and that's just it. I've stayed away from politics. I've stayed away from 
religion, a state of, it's economic. Straight up economic fight would fix all of the rest of the fights because all they have to do is sort out what, how the damn thing applies. And we've now challenged the government and that we're waiting obviously on a motion to dismiss, which is bizarre in the DDC. But if we get through that, you know, Tracy, a whole lot of us, I, I don't have the resources to help, but I'm going to need everybody that is involved in this because we'll have access to all of the government agencies and what their interactions with the government are, because that's what the case is about. We're yeah, already if, doing it. If anybody wants to follow your case, Jason, where can they go? Because I'm I'm not saying all the things that I said when you came up here because I don't respect what you're doing or I don't think it's important or, you know, any of that stuff. Um, I want people to know what you're doing and I want people to know that it's important. So if, if you have a website where people can go. Yeah, no, I and, and I know just so everybody knows in here, I've known Tracy. I, I, she wasn't being insulting. The, the intricacies of trying to untwist two and a half decades worth of nonsense can take hours. I'm just talking in generalities. But if anybody wants to follow this, um, go to socialmediafreedom.org. It is our 501c3, again, socialmediafreedom.org. Or you can just follow me on here and message me. I, I generally respond to most people. But realistically, we're in this fight. We're already in it. We're just trying to break through that initial you know, level. And, it's, and, and everybody's asking, like, oh, well, you keep losing. I'm like, no, I'm up against the government. I'm not up against uh, social media. They won't let me through. Like, they're trying everything they can to stop me because as soon as I break through, all hell's going to break loose for them. And real quick, before I let you go and bring up Caroline, who I think was, oh, or was it? Yeah, I'm not sure who was next. Um, Nick will have to, uh, not Nick, name will have to tell me. Um, who who have you worked with in Congress real quick? Um, the list is actually kind of long. I worked with Massey. I worked with Gosar. Gosar recognized as soon as the Supreme Court uh, fixes this, that all of the legislation that's being proposed is going to become moot. I have that in a text message. Um, but I've worked with Massey. I've worked with, um, I have a call with Ron Johnson next week. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of different people. The thing is, is that it's taking everybody a long time to catch up, to recognize we've been right since 2018. So it's, it's, it's been a long time. I mean, I'm telling you, this guy's been relentless, relentless. Jason has been, um, relentless. I, I respect you and I love you. And thank you so much for coming up here. Thanks, Tracy. We're going to go to uh, Caroline and then uh, just curious. Okay, Caroline, you're next. Hi, thanks for letting me speak. Um, when I first hopped on, Kyle was talking about um, Twitter and like DMs not being encrypted and then a little bit about informed consent. Um, and I just had uh, an anecdotal story about informed consent. One of my um, really good friends had cancer several years ago and um, she's fine now, but I went to a lot of those doctor appointments with her and it was just astounding how little of anything was explained when you're talking about really um, serious treatments like chemo and uh, different kinds of radiation and um, I went through her reports with her and we just Googled every single word that we didn't know. And when we left one of her appointments, her doctor looked at me and said, if you ever want a recommendation for medical school, please call me. You know, That's it's funny when you say that. It's so it's so true. First of all, thank you for helping your friend because people who are in situations like that need a you so badly because if you're not your own advocate then you're kind of stuck in the system and you're lost so god bless you for doing that yeah 
it's it's terrible to think that like you know many people and and for the record my friend ended up not uh doing conventional treatment and <clears throat> aside from surgery and she's seven years cancer free um which is you know amazing um but it's just it's really scary to think that like most people when they find out that they have cancer they go into panic mode and they're like, what do I do? What do I do? And they're just willing to do absolutely anything that the doctor tells them without asking any questions. And so, um, that was just that I was really grateful for that experience ahead of COVID because I felt like during COVID I was going in with really, um, like clear eyesight and clear, a clear mind. Um, so that's just my anecdote on that. But Kyle, I did have a question about, um, Twitter DMs being encrypted. Um, I was DMing with somebody and they sent me their phone number because Twitter's encrypted and they wanted to, you know, just take conversation offline. Um, am I correct in thinking that, um, yeah, that's weird to send your phone number over DMs if we know that they're not encrypted. However, we use um, phone numbers to verify our sign-in for a lot of social media accounts. Does it stand to reason that they already have our phone number anyway? Like woke and woke Twitter employees? Yeah, like, for sure. If they want to dox us, don't they already have it? Yeah. So, okay. So first of all, um, I'm going to just correct a little thing you said, and I think it was just by accident, but you said that uh, Twitter DMs are encrypted. That's not the case. I, I don't think you were implying that. I think you just sort of misstated it. So the big difference. I did misstate. They're not encrypted. Exactly right. So there's a, the, what we're, when we talk about encryption, we're talking about end to end. What that means is that my phone encrypts it. We send it through an encrypted tunnel where nobody else gets to see what it is. So the data in motion is protected through the encryption. And then it's unlocked on your end. That's the, that's the other end of the encryption. So end to end. And there are apps that do that, which we know. Um, WhatsApp, as far as I know, uh, and I've just done enough reading on it, and I don't have any friends that trust it in any real space in the intelligence community. I, I'm pretty com confident it's compromised, but let the drug dealers keep using it if they want to. And I guess the Latin Americans love using it too. And so be it like, that's a thing. Um, we stick to things like signal and session. Um, you can play with Wicker, but Wicker was developed with, uh, you know, obviously it's Amazon web services at this point. So there's some suspicion there. And, uh, all the people that I know that trust it are CIA and, uh, the CIA helped develop it. Very big CIA app, yes. Yeah, so, and that means I don't trust it, uh, which is funny because, like, they all did, but now a lot of those guys are starting to jump off. Once you start, uh, you know, if you're working for the CIA and you're doing CIA work overseas, great, like, so be it. Then maybe, like, having a CIA-developed app is a good thing for you, and I'm sure it's secure, uh, at least, you know, <laughs> with possible penetrations by the CIA. So if that's the case, then uh, a lot of these guys are jumping off and they're going into other, like, third-party apps that are not, that don't have government developments. So yes, as you I, sign in, I'm going to get back to your question. As you sign in and you, you validate it, there's a hundred percent chance that your name, whatever name you gave the, uh, the phone number that you gave, which is going to be attached to it at any personal information in your profile that you choose to, to do is going to be what's called subscriber information. And all of that stuff is searchable by warrant. It is, uh, you know, searchable by subpoena and it is available to the company under a profile that they are building of you. That's what their product is. Their product is data. And you're a part of it. So whatever you provide to them, 100% that. Now, if you use like a Google phone number or something and you start, there's ways you can get around it. You can do burner phones and stuff like that. And people who really care do that. 
Um, and so there are ways that you could do it. There's a book called Extreme Privacy. If people want to go get it, I don't, uh, I can't remember the author's name, but uh, I have it. It's like a like a textbook. It's huge, and the, and the guy puts out a thing every every year. You could buy it on Amazon. It's like forty bucks for the, the paperback. It's got all the things. If you want to go totally crazy ghosty, you can do it. Uh, my buddy just told me he got you know cash paid for gift cards. Used the gift cards to buy a you know deniable cell phone. Got that operated on on a. Um, pay as you go cash only network and then registered all that with and used graphene. Like there's ways you can get super wild about privacy. If you want to do it, most people don't, most of us are lazy and I'll include myself in it. And so, yeah, like your data is exposed. You just got to choose your own risk and protect the things that need to be protected when you're doing it. So before you speak again, Caroline, understand like a friend of mine just, just texted me while we're talking and says phone number your geolocation data is available to Twitter in real time if your geolocation services are on. So, yeah, I mean, you're worried about phone number. They can find you on a map to the to the coordinate. Totally. I was just – the suggestion was brought up, like, hey, if you put your phone number in um, Twitter DMs, like, they can see that. And my thought was, well, if I want to have a conversation with someone off the app that I met on the app – I'm not really exposing anything new. That yeah, that's correct. correct. I do that all the time. Okay, Look, cool. like like I okay, said, cool. you choose your level of risk. Like the, the fact that they can find your phone number is not going to be the thing that's the incriminating piece. Like all the other things that the app is reporting back on you, it's going to give so much more information than your number. My my point to you is that if you're exposing things that are personal secrets that you don't want to do, I'd say take those to an app, take those, you know, to an encrypted thing. Any discussions, photos, things like that that you're not willing to share with the world then make sure you share them with not the world. That's that's my advice in general. That's like a regular person. If you get paranoid, you start moving down the other path, obviously. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks, Caroline. Um, and thanks for being a good advocate for your friend. And if um, I ever need someone to do medical research, I'll come to you. Call me. <laughs> that's awesome. I've got your number, wink and a nod. Um, no, okay. <laughs> Kingmaker is next. Uh, no, Just Curious is next. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Just Curious. Hey, Tracy. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much for bringing me up. And um, I just wanted to, I know you've heard this a lot, but I am so glad that you're back. You were one of a handful of people that I was really following when I was trying to figure out what had happened to our whole world. And when you evaporated, I was so bummed. It was such a loss. So it's so, I'm so delighted that you're back. And um, I'm so glad that you're doing this space. You know, I've been trying to uh, learn as much as I can about this case. I've been hearing about it. And I was just looking through the documents a little bit more. I know this is pretty clearly a First Amendment case. But what I wanted to ask, if you could maybe clarify or if you know, I was on a space, the days are blending. It might have been yesterday. It might have been the day before. And there were two doctors, practicing physicians, that were on the space and speaking. And they were sort of trying to give, like, the other side. And they were very tactful and, you know, very well-spoken. And, you know, it was always sort of very frustrating because it was, uh, you know, they weren't, they, they weren't, they didn't, it didn't sound like they were speaking very truthfully. And what I mean is they didn't sound like they were speaking freely. And one of the, and the, uh, there was a woman physician and she, she said something that I have just been reeling from, uh, and I'll try to keep this tight ever since she said it. And it seems so obvious, but I can't get it out of my mind. She got a little bit defensive, I think maybe. And, uh, she was trying to say, you have to understand how hard it is for those of us that are practicing to even come onto these spaces for fear of retaliation from their workplaces. And 
it was one of those, and she said it very calmly and it was received calmly in the space. And frankly, I can see a lot of people in here. My, I have a lot of friends, faces, familiar faces uh, that I can see that are here right now that probably heard this. And it kind of just went by calmly because I think we all just sort of know, yeah, like, yeah, doctors can't tell you the truth anymore. Anyway, I've been reeling from that ever since. And so when I uh, saw that you were doing this space today, I wondered, can you, do you know, or can you clarify how, uh, I mean, I know Dr. Gold is bringing lawsuit in California, but how this case might relate to doctors' abilities to sue their employers. I mean, it's obviously a different, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I was, I know you talk to so many doctors. So I was just curious if you knew anything about sort of where any of that, because I was thinking, my God, every day doctors are in offices, not being able to tell their, I mean, and again, I know what I'm saying is obvious, but it just hit me like a bomb in a new way yesterday. So that's the, that's really the question. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, it's something um, I actually, and thank you for all your kind words, by the way. Um, appreciate that very much. Um, I, um, wrote about this a few months ago where I said the time for silence is over, right? Because even though you're sitting there and you're afraid to speak because you could lose your license and you could lose your job and, you know, you, you can't speak out, you you took an oath to do no harm and to keep, you know, to keep your patients first and foremost. And we have the state of California now, obviously, that's basically weaponized um, public health policy against providers. And this case in and of itself it has literally probably zero relation to um, the medical associations and what what can or cannot be done between those or a state coming in and saying, you know, if you say misinformation will take your license away or anything like that, it, it that we, we have a column that we just did. Um, I think it was last week about the California issue. And it is absolutely terrifying. Um from a patient standpoint and a physician standpoint. Yeah, it really um, is. Yeah. I'm in California and I have to say since, and I have a doctor I have had for a very long time and I love this man and I look at him and he seems now to me, and I hate to say this, but he seems like a Stepford wife. I just feel so yeah. creeped out and I feel really, really badly for him. So I don't, I, obviously these, these cases would, would be incredibly different, but I was wondering if they, if this case were to succeed, might it sort of pave the way or sort of like really uh, break a dam? Yeah, I think you could use it as, of course, as a bolster or precedent, um, in a way, it would have to be kind of shape shifted a little bit because it is it is a much different case, but it is kind of the same premise from the COVID standpoint, I think. Um, however, you know, there's going to have to be a line drawn in the sand and it had to have probably happened a, a little while back where people just say to hell with it. I can't do this. And you're you're right. I asked Dr. McCullough one time when I was interviewing him a really tough question about why people are like that. Like, why does that happen? Why did doctors become like slaves to a, um, you know, CDC recommendation or FDA recommendation? Why? Um, and and he, he just basically said it, 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 it's almost institutionalization, like Kyle was talking about a few minutes ago. And it's hard to break free from, but you're seeing how many doctors have. I have to just say this, if you're a doctor or a nurse on this space right now, and you're keeping your mouth shut about things that you know, for fear of the retaliation, um, first, thank the people that paved the way and came before you and then honor them and your patients by being the trailblazer yourself. Because until that happens, we're going to be in deep doo-doo. 
Okay. And it's hard to lose your job and your livelihood. Look, Steve lost his, basically lost his job and his livelihood and his wife lost hers. And Kyle had the same thing happen to him. And, you know, numerous other people throughout history have had that happen. But until there's a, you know, a critical mass of you guys out there who are unafraid anymore and are just doing the right thing, we're, we're in, we're in trouble. So. Yeah, um, I think that's very well said, Tracy. And I, I do want to just echo that, uh, it's incredibly difficult for people to do that. And I would never uh, take for granted that somebody should just throw their job away. But I also, this is what, the part of your spirit that I miss and I'm so glad to have you back. And, and thanks to you, Kyle, because uh, so many people here have this spirit. Like this is kind of a do or die moment. It really is. Yep. All right. Yeah, and you're dealing with people's health here. You're not dealing with, this is life or death, literally life or death. We're not talking about, you know, like people used to say to me all the time, well, I don't really want to get the shot, but I'm going to do it because I can't lose my job and my pension. So I'm going to do it. And I was like, but don't you understand if you do that, you're like, I said, the people who stand up and stay strong in the face of this and figure it out somehow are going to be the ones that make it easier for you. Just hold out a little bit longer, at least hold out, please. God, I would beg people, please just wait. The, 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 you know, the page is going to turn and it's going to, and we're seeing it. I mean, the, the page is turned and now all of these poor people who were forced into this by coercion are stuck with the aftermath of it. And, and they can't, they can't do anything about it now. I mean, now they're, they're sort of in this limbo and, all it took was the guts. I mean, we had trailblazers that paved the way and everybody just needed to hop in behind them. There's this weird saying or, or experiment where they have one people, one person get up and dance in the middle of a park, right? And everybody kind of looks at them like they're absolutely insane. But then someone else gets up and dances next to them. And it's like, huh, there's two people dancing. And then someone else gets up. And once you hit four, it's almost inevitable that everybody else will get up and start dancing. Everybody has to dance together now. We have to be dancing. And I think I stole that from Dan Bongino, actually, who said it on his podcast. Yes, he has that incredible video. It is brilliant. I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. All right. Yeah, I, it just came to me. Um, thank Thanks, you so Tracy. much for coming up. Appreciate here. it. Kyle has something to say about this, too. And then I have a couple other people. There's somebody who's joined us here that um, Kyle wants to introduce. Yep. So I'll do that, too. Um, so uh, just curious, just along those lines, there's a guy named Greg Hahn, H-A-H-N, who was a, uh, a Navy veteran and he was in North Carolina. There's a, if you look up his name, you can find his story. But essentially, he was a juror with 100 people in a jury room waiting to go in front of a judge to be selected, whether he was going to be on the jury panel or not. And uh, he was told to wear a mask in a courtroom that didn't require it, other than this particular judge's courtroom, and the judge wasn't wearing a mask. And he said no, and he went to jail over it. And you, you talk about like being prepared to do the right thing. You don't have to have that idea. You just have to be the guy that follows the guy that's doing the right thing. So Greg Hahn knew the right thing, which is no, no way in hell am I putting on a mask. You're not wearing a mask. You're out of your damn mind. That's the right answer. And he was willing to go to jail for it. If 50 other people in the jury room had stood up and said, I'm not wearing a mask either, that is a non-issue now. Now we're done. And so it's the same thing as if, you know, I'm going along to get along equals we're all going to suffer in tyranny until somebody stops. You cannot comply your way out of tyranny. That's not an option. And so that's where we're at right now. We're in this world where it's uh, people are starting to realize it. There's a couple of people up dancing. So be it. I think a lot of people know what the right answer is. Do the right answer for you. It may be different than what I'm doing. I think there's a lot of people that would do differently than what I do with the same information. That's okay. But some people want to do what we're doing. So jump in. Um, the the follow-up to that is uh, I want to introduce a friend of mine, a new friend of mine. His name is George Hill. You'll see him up on the speaker panel as senior chief. And I think that many of you are going to have some really interesting questions for him because his background is excellent. 
Um, he's a former United States Marine and did uh, intelligence work for them. He also continues military career in the United States Navy doing intel work for them. That's a totally separate animal from his civilian service where he worked for uh, the NSA for five years and then 11 years with the FBI as a senior intelligence analyst. He had several programs. He was working out of Boston. He saw a lot of big stuff, including the uh, the Boston Marathon bombing and uh, ran the task force there. So um, George and I did a long form uh, interview for two hours. You guys can find on our podcast this week, but I think he's a wealth of information and I'll let George say hi and you guys might want to talk to him too. Oh, okay, great. So um, good evening, folks. I'm, I apologize for being late. Um, tonight was the uh, last night of class uh, that I teach. And uh, so um, just trying to get up to speed as quickly as possible and um, try to, that when I speak, add some sort of value. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I'm glad you uh, you could join us. It's fantastic. Um, and I'm sure I'll have a gazillion trillion questions for you, um, either now or offline. I'm not sure, but um, it's it's good to have you here. Thanks, Kyle, for bringing him in as well. And I'm I'm... I'm syndicating Kyle's podcast for him. I'm kind of blasting it out to my folks so that more more eyes are on it until he grows the massive set of wings um, that he already has and, and the gust comes along and takes him away. So if you want to check out that episode, it's actually on the Uncover DC website. I'm sure, Kyle, you have it pinned to your profile or it's somewhere there. Um, if you go under podcast, there's a section there where you can find all of his podcasts um and they go right back to his rumble channel so click through the link to go back to his rumble channel and check out what he's doing um i think tamara you've had your hand up for a long time so i'm gonna go to you hi thank you tracy for letting me uh come up and speak also um if you don't know i'm tamara i do turn on politics my co-host brent hamachek which is the reason i raised my hand when the gal was talking about maybe some adverse effects from the vaccine um my co-host Brent Hamachek co-wrote Dr. Zelenko's book, uh, Zelenko, How to Decapitate the Serpent. And you can get it on Amazon or at the Zelenko Foundation. I was blessed to know Dr. Zelenko before he passed away. And, of course, Brent spent a lot of time with him prior to his passing as well, researching and, and co-writing the book. The backstory to that is my 32 I think she was 30 year old daughter at the time within less than 24 hours of getting her second Moderna shot she fortunately was at work uh it was Friday morning was at work she she did the flat drop like we're seeing all over you know sports fields and everywhere else she went completely down tried to get up again and went down again. And the blessing, there were two blessings that I just thank God for. One, she was at work. And two, they had a very hard tile floor. <laughs> and she got a concussion. And her co-workers called 911, not because they were aware of any cardiac arrest going on, um, but because she had concussed herself when she hit the tile floor so hard. Her uh, heart stopped four more times in the ER before they were able to get her stable. And that was just after the second Moderna shot. No boosters, anything like that, that adverse effect. And I had, and I talked with Dr. Zelenko and he said, you know, make sure she should be on uh, ivermectin. 
And so I don't know how many are familiar with the Zelenko protocol of the either HCQ, ivermectin, or the Qsertin, the zinc, and the C&D. Uh, Dr. Zelenko was really the pioneer in bringing that forward as early intervention and as a therapeutic. And so I just wanted to be able to come up and share that information with people if they know of family members or have had any kind of adverse effects. You can do the uh, therapeutics. My 90-year-old mother has been, ever since I talked to Dr. Zelenko, he prescribed HCQ for her. And um, I've had her on either HCQ or Qsertin and the zinc and C&D, and she's 90 years old and has not had COVID this whole time. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you, Tracy. It's great to have you back, too. I love having Twitter back, <laughs> like I the know. good old days. <laughs> I know. It's fantastic. God bless your daughter. I hope she's doing well now. Yeah, um, she's great now. But, you know, I got her on the on the therapeutic things. But, um, you know, it's hard. They're young. they they had their jobs and they thought they were doing the right thing. And if, if I hadn't been as informed, she probably would not have made the connection to the COVID either. You know, you don't know. So we really do have to be that whole dance team out there letting people know. So thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. And yes, agreed. That's why this, um, what we're, what the space is about today is so important because again, it's life or death. It's life or death. It really is. This topic specifically is life or death for people. If they would have had the opportunity to read information counter to the prevailing narrative, which ended up being propaganda, then different decisions could have been made all around. So it's terrible. that. Yeah. Been I also wanted to add, I forgot to say, Senator Ron Johnson, who he yep. led one of the early panels. Uh, I actually had a call with him personally to give him my daughter's information when he was doing the adverse effects he is uh, an open ear to hear any of the information you have. Um, he's been one of the lights in a very dark Congress. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, he's a trailblazer yeah. on that and so many other things um, for sure. And yeah. um, I appreciate you. Thank you for sharing that. Everyone can go to your profile to find your show. I'm, I'm assuming, correct? Yep. It's over there. Yep. I'm on rumble. YouTube took us down. <laughs> um, but yeah, some, we had some great content with Dr. Um, uh, Keith Rose and Dr. Janelle Rauthier. She's a, a pharmaceutical whistleblower. Uh, either one of those, uh, Dr. Keith Rose is a scalpel's edge, but a lot of great uh, professionals speaking out about it. And then Tracy, I just wanted to add a personal note to say your uh, undercover article about the Brunson case was phenomenal. I was supposed to write an article for StopHate.com. I work with David Summerall and StopHate and he wanted me to write an article. And I said, Tracy did it so well. Just go there. Listen, I can't take full credit for that article. I had a co-author who was absolutely in incredible, um, Adam Carter. So I have to appreciate, I have to give him the appreciation. Thank yeah. you for saying that. Um, yep, you bet. Thanks. Okay, so name has a question for um, for um, is it George? Please, Kyle, tell me I'm right. It's George. Okay, good. Name has a question for George Kingmaker. I see you. You're next. Don't worry. I'm so sorry. Name, go ahead. So George, since you're up here, um, I don't know if you've seen uh, the threads I've done or whatnot, but as part of the Twitter files release, um, we did some work and found that there's hundreds of former and you know employees of you know analysts agents whatnot from the intelligence community that were hired on to facebook and google and about a dozen to twitter and they were all hired since 2017 and specifically with facebook and google the 
people that are running their uh, misinformation trust and safety departments, they're all the people that are ahead of ahead of them are all ex CIA. I was just curious what your thoughts on that are. Yeah. So when that phenomenon first um, started in, in 2017, um, I saw a couple people uh, leave out uh, pr- probably one of our best analysts who is still employed at Twitter, uh, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, and she was uh, absolutely brilliant and I'm sure still is in in phone analysis. And I'm like, what what possible purpose could she serve at Twitter? But she was a single mother and, you know, she was a significant salary increase and she could work from home. And, um, you know, I just, you know, I didn't want to begrudge her, uh, uh, the opportunity. Um, but then as, as, as all this information started trickling out over the last year or so, uh, of this, uh, I wouldn't even call them a cadre. It's, it's, it's larger than that, uh, individuals that have been hired into these organizations to do nothing more than to sluice out and identify, uh, who these people are. Um, and then, you know, we've identified, a to use the, the, the parlance of, of the industry, a reporting mechanism to, to get that back to, um, whether it be, uh, uh, C- uh the terrorism directorate at, at FBI or, um, within Homeland Security, HSI, and if you want to talk about some cowboys, that's them. Um, you know, so there's a reporting mechanism uh, to get that information back uh, to the intel community. And I, I try to only speak about of, of what I know. So having not been on the receiving end of that and not having any sources um, who have had an opportunity to make use of that information flow, um, I, I can't speak long and eloquently about it, but I've seen enough that I can assess with a high degree of confidence that, that, that these people are so large in number and knowing the skill set that they do, which essentially in the intelligence community is called targeting, um, and that there's a reporting mechanism for them to report that information back to, to DC. Um, and there's also, you know, private chat, uh, channels for them to talk, you know, at least within Twitter we know of. Um, yeah, they, they basically have created the Silicon Valley has created, uh, a shadow Intel community, uh, within the private sector. And it's weaponized. And were, were you aware that the people in charge of content moderation and, or misinformation, censorship at Google and Facebook, they're all ex CIA. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I didn't know that in 2017. Um, I I'd say that became part of my knowledge set when the Twitter files, uh, started coming out. Um, I, I, I'm going to be frank and honest here in that, you know, when I saw people onesie twosies start to migrate out there, um, it, it did not raise my antenna. I'd, I'd like to pat myself on the back and say that it did, but that's that's not true. How come it didn't raise your antenna? Um, just a small trickle of, of numbers, um, and my optic was strictly FBI. Okay, so you, you kind of fit into this thing. Like it, 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 given that you've done the right thing, is it stunning to you to see how this has happened? Like almost as though there's an unaccountable, which I I would argue some of the intelligence community is unaccountable anyway, 
an unaccountable uh, ring, for lack of a better word, at all of the social media companies? And has it stunned you to see all this come out? Um, no, because I know how I know how the uh, the intelligence community operates, especially uh, the CIA. And, and, and it, it, this is not praise, um, but it's brilliant. What they've done is they've created a shadow uh, intelligence collection element within Silicon Valley that reports back to law enforcement that is entirely unconstrained by congressional oversight or any kind of, of, of federal law. Yeah, it is brilliant, isn't it? It's kind of sick. Hey, Tracy, <laughs> I, I want to I yeah. tee George up with, with the softball, but, but it's one of the most impactful things that I heard him say, and, and it took two hours to kind of for us to come to some things. Every once in a while, you just see one of those gems that comes out. It just, it's just forged because of a long conversation. George, do you mind uh, elaborating just a little bit on, on when you talked about the, the definition change after 9-11 of national security? I think when people hear that, it'll be immediately obvious to them. But uh, I think it's relevant to this conversation as well, like what, how we got here. Yeah, I, I'll try to be short. Uh, it, I, I went in the Marine Corps in 1976, so at, at a pretty tense time uh, within the Cold War, um, we had – I don't remember what the DEFCON was, but we were really close to, to launching strategic bombers at one point because of a computer, computer glitch, and I think that was like 1979. Um, so it was – widely understood across the population as well as the military that national security meant the following. National security meant the continuation of the United States and the protection of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights enshrined therein. Everyone in the business understood that that is what national security meant. Down to the guy pumping your gas or, or somebody you know serving your coffee at the diner. It was it was widely understood, and somehow on on nine eleven of two thousand one, the day after, national security uh, transformed into no American shall die at the hands of a terrorist. And I'm not making that up. George Bush forty three brought Bob Mueller into his office after nine eleven and said. I know you're going to catch these people, but what are you going to do to stop the next one? And in the horror of 9-11 and still in the smoking rubble of, of the World Trade Center, the Patriot Act was passed to make sure that no American shall ever die at the hands of a terrorist. And it, it wasn't even subtle, but it, it took place during a time of, of emotional turmoil that the entire nation was experiencing. And when you saw those flags, almost kind of like with the COVID mask, you know, people said, you know, all right, two weeks to slow the spread. And, and people were willing to sacrifice some degree of personal liberty. Um, it was somewhat similar on, on September 12th, 2001, when everybody's flags came out and all of a sudden everybody became a patriotic American. And it's like, yes, we, we need the Patriot Act so that this doesn't happen again. Um, so it, it changed, and and there were some people, I have no doubt, that intentionally did that, um, knowing what they were doing. And then there was others, what the communists used to call useful idiots, people that were just like, yes, emotionally, we have to do this. 
I'm so glad that you just said that last part right there. Um, I'm so glad because it's, it's, it's always used as a tool. Fear is, is weaponized against us often. Um, and you know, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. It's, it's not a misnomer. It's absolutely true. Um, give, give a little bit. It's gone. It's just gone forever. You're awesome. I'm, I'm stealing you from Kyle and I'm going to make you come on my podcast. Um, thanks for joining us here. This, this is incredible and I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm going to mute my mic. All right, King. Thank you, Tracy. Uh, I have a question following following up on something James uh, discussed. It's directed to Kyle, Steve, and George. Uh, the latest Twitter files dropped by Matt Taibbi, the uh, belly button drop, I'll call it, described a system, a well-developed complex system whereby a number of agencies are using the FBI and in particular Elvis Chan and his group as intermediaries whenever they want they wanted to get uh, social media to do some content moderation at their request and I'm talking about agencies like DOD State Department CIA DHS and others uh, my question to you three is, how do you think that came about? Was it cabinet-level coordination? Or would there be a memo from the White House directing that sort of creature to uh, uh, be used to uh, send everything through the FBI? Uh, or was it something they came up with over coffee? or at a conference one time. What do you think? And then I have a second question for Tracy. Uh, I've been following the Missouri and Louisiana lawsuit, and Taibbi's uh, drop frankly stunned me. I saw no hint in any of the uh, pleadings or depositions or, or documents that I read in that suit. Uh, suggesting that that kind of system was being used by our government. Uh, do you think, Tracy, that the government intentionally hid what they were doing from the plaintiffs? So I, I'll answer that, and then I'll, I'll let the other folks come in. Um, the first complaint was almost as though they were arguing from a you have to accept our, our, well, our well-pled pleadings, right? Um the second amended complaint after the discovery was granted was completely different from that. So yes, absolutely. I, I think that that's the case. I don't know if you've read the second amendment complaint or not, uh, amended complaint or not. I have. Yes. So you can see the difference in, in, in tone, but they haven't, it doesn't appear to me that if they've received discovery from Twitter, that they've released it. And I don't know that there's a discovery order for Twitter. So I think that they're going off of emails and stuff from within the government at this point, and they'll branch out from there. Um, so if you, you're, you're an attorney, I saw in your bio. So if you've read the docket and you see a discovery order for any of these other social media companies, let me know because I missed it. Well, I missed it too. And, I, and, and in particular, Elvis Chan, he's the intermediary. Uh, he's the one that's passing on all these requests yep. on behalf of these other agencies. You that's, don't see a hint of that in his deposition. Nobody right. asked him that question. 
he completely skirts the the answers yeah. on that. Yes. Yeah. And and I said early in the space, I don't know if you were here, but Elvis Chan was delivered to um to Missouri and Louisiana via Facebook. They didn't even really know he existed until that. So Yeah, so so I, my point is it, it it looks to me and and keep this in mind when you read further pleadings from that case. Looks to me like maybe the FBI intentionally hid the the system that they had come up with whereby the FBI was passing on uh, requests for other agencies. And so and my question now is to Kyle, Steve, and George, how would something like that come about? Do you need cabinet-level re- uh, approval? I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, there's certainly always that, that possibility of some sort of Bond villain behind the the curtain who's you know pulling the strings but I, I think that that's just that's just something that's an easy thing for us to kind of assign you know white hats and black hats to uh theatrically in our mind i think in general you know the uh <clears throat> the, the management uh course for folks uh within within the bureau you know brings you back and forth shuttles you to the swamp so often uh that just through sheer osmosis everybody just kind of Starts to start to pull in the same direction, and uh, and then you know just with people moving from from the you know the FBI or the intel uh, you know to the private sector and making that transition um, along the way, you know they are it's it's beneficial to the you know to the company that they wind up going to, and it's beneficial from the agency that they leave behind that they are uh, they all work in this the same. This, same direction it's not necessarily that they're they're colluding behind the scenes and they're having these conversations i think that you know the the fbi wants to say that it does a good job um so that you know it's you know it represents itself as this premier law enforcement agency so uh you know they they communicate with uh, twitter and with facebook and then try to negotiate uh, more advantageous uh means that they can get this information and the people that have moved on from the fbi have gone there and their entire reputation you know precedes them uh as from the fbi being successful so they they want to you know obviously keep that reputation going and it's going to help them in their career and it's going to help the relationships with the people behind them um, so they just they work together in order and then everybody's just tends to be rowing in the same direction i don't think that uh that there's really just a you know, there's a cabinet level meeting with the president and they say, you know, how are we going to stomp out what we need and uh, what we need to? I think that everybody just kind of naturally gravitates in that direction because the the natural course of government is to grow and uh, and the natural course of these big companies is to you know, get on the good side of government so they can continue to grow and stomp out their own competition. It, it was my experience in my practice that uh, – there wasn't at, at times cooperation and communication amongst and across agencies were left a lot to be desired. And yeah, and if, you have a system whereby, for example, CIA. CIA has X CIA people in uh, key positions at Twitter. So it would have been natural for a CIA, if CIA wanted something moderated uh, that was on Twitter, uh, you'd think somebody at the CIA would pick up the phone and call his buddy and ask that it be done. But that's not what happened. They, they're, they're funneling everything through the, F, the San Francisco FBI office. And do you think that just sprung up naturally? 
or or was it put in place somewhere? No. Um, so you're talking about Elvis Chan's effort out out in San Francisco. So about three years ago, three yeah, about three years ago, the FBI created a program called SOMEX, S-O-M-E-X, Social Media Exploitation Group. And for a field office to use the SOMEX team, um, they have to write an EC, an electronic communication, which then has to be approved uh, all the way up to the SAC. And we did use it in Boston um, for special events like the, you know, the July 4th uh, celebrations or the Boston Marathon or a- anything that required a, a threat assessment uh, to it and, and some sort of command post, either virtual uh, people being on call or actually meet in the seat. So SOMEX is a social media exploitation uh, element where they geofence an area and then they track all manner of, and there's software associated with it, and I can't recall, um, but they they track every posting that's going on uh, on social media, and they aggregate all of that along with cell phone traffic and any other kind of police reporting coming in. So it's it's kind of like a, a fusion center. So so that that capability was already developed and well on its way uh, when Elvis Chan uh, started his uh, effort out in San Francisco. That training, the training and experience. Was that an FBI-centric uh, operation? or was Yes. It yep, no, no, it was FBI-centric. It was an FBI creation. Um, I, I can't tell you, you know, so, how, the individuals how, who rolled it out, but yeah. How would that data get rolled out to the other agencies? As I understand what Saibi said, the other agencies would buy data and then mine it and then pass their requests to chance group. Sure. The, the way it's supposed to work um, is, is it goes under official letterhead. Uh, if, if we're, you know, moving data, unless we're talking about a simple email. So what I saw on January 6th and, and obviously after that was when it first started, uh, you know, the, you know, tracking all the insurrectionists, um, and I'm saying that with tongue in cheek, um, they were using, I can't remember the name of it. They bought it. The FBI bought a, uh, during COVID, a Microsoft product where um, it, it was it was more robust than say SharePoint, and they were collecting all the names and pertinent data uh, on this Microsoft platform, and it became pretty apparent like within ten days uh, that that was would be dis- that would be discoverable, and the manner in which that this was getting populated was clearly outside uh, the DIOG, the Defense and, uh, Domestic Intelligence Operations Guide. And so they moved the collection process strictly to email, um, the INJEX uh, being fed into uh, DTOS, Domestic Terrorism Operations Center. And, now, and email is discoverable. Um, but not as easily, say, as, as, as the Microsoft platform that they were using. 
And a lot of those emails were emanating from, you know, state fusion centers as well as FBI field offices. Um, so there was an effort uh, early on by February 1st of, of 2020 um, to uh, uh, stovepipe uh, the data and limit access to it. So the, the FBI has been climbing this learning curve in terms of, of social media exploitation and siloing uh, uh, collection efforts uh, to be outside the scope of any kind of review process. That, that's kind of what I guessed, which, which is what made Taibi, what, uh, what Taibi wrote about uh, very surprising. When you say fusion center, you're talking about state law enforcement, correct? Correct. The fusion centers were created also as part of the Patriot Act. A lot of federal money went out to create these uh, fusion centers. Um, the ones that I've been in, I worked in one my last two years. I just called them the Confusion Center. Um, it is it is strictly window dressing. So so how, <laughs> so back to my question: How how did these other agencies, CIA, DOD, state, how did they join the party? So, again, I'm, I'm not sitting with Elvis, and I'm not down at DTOS, down at the at, uh, FBI headquarters, but I know how the process works in that, you know, these people all have uh, embeds. So you have OGA, CIA, you know, scattered at, around cities uh, across the country, Um you can simply sneaker net that information over to them. You just point out, say, Hey, this is, this is your using the other term, you know, this is your belly button button over at CIA. Um, they're going to be over tomorrow afternoon. And, you know, a lot of this stuff, uh, takes place offline. And I, and I, I can speak from experience here, you know, uh, on cases and the like, um, because they would say, don't send me an email. You know, don't put it in Sentinel. Come over and talk to me. Don't write it down. Um, you know, so, you know, there's a fine line between the FBI and organized crime. That's, a, that's such a good soundbite. Hey, King, Kingmaker, I want to kind of um, just expand out just um, maybe at a more general level that will help people understand. First of all, uh, George, I'm not sure if you're in the room, but we talked about the fact that the FBI has InfraGuard and they have regular contact with private industry They've got the Office of Partner Engagement and the Office of, of Private Sector. So that's an ongoing thing. But people may, uh, and especially if they haven't been hearing me talk about this a lot, the FBI is is deeply part of the intelligence community and has been at least now since 9-11 to the point where when I first got my first email issued to me, you know, it was my name, Kyle Serafin or Kyle.Serafin at IC intelligence community dot FBI dot gov. Now they've shortened it. So it's FBI dot gov at this point. But that was a real wake-up call when I went through the academy in 2016 that the, that the FBI considers itself intelligence agency first, law enforcement second. And so if you're looking at it as the FBI from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, you're looking at it altogether wrong. And you've got to really hone in on that. So the fact that there is this, like like you said, the sneaker net where we have NSA embeds sitting in the skiff next to us. We've got CIA liaisons there. Um, like These kind of people are all part of the, the regular operations, particularly in the national security realm. So it's not real surprising that the FBI might have the public face because the other agencies don't do it nearly as much or, or necessarily as uh, as comfortably. And then the fact that you're going to go through and have your FBI contact be the one who's going to be funneling this back and forth, like it makes perfect sense from just 
just from looking at the logistical uh, setup of the operation. Just real quick, King, thank you so much for your questions. Um, we have to do a hard stop at 930. So I'm, I just I'm done. I'm done. Thank you, Tracy. And uh, I'll uh, good night, everybody. Thank you so much. This was really informative. Your questions were fantastic. Um, I w we're going to have to end at 930. So I know there are still some people waiting to speak. We'll get to as many people as possible. The people in the space are a wealth of information. Um, so I'm excited to have all of them here. Um, just looking to see who is next. Um, go ahead, Nick, because I lost your message. So, so bring up the next speaker. Uh, Truth is next and then Michael. Go ahead, Truth. Good evening. First off, um, I do want to call out uh, Tracy in that, um, thank you. You gave such motivation to many citizens like me sitting in their home office to dig and investigate and and seek the truth. So one, thank you very much. You, you definitely inspired many of us um, and you do a fantastic job at telling us what we need to know, not necessarily what we want to know. <laughs> thank you so much. I was afraid when you said you were going to call me out. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. What did I do? <laughs> no, I just, you know, I followed you. I, I, I don't know how I latched on to you early on years ago and then you were off Twitter, but I was impressed by the way that you would succinctly, very quickly, easily to understand, break a very uh, complex uh, issue down for people. And, and it, for, for, you know, I don't know what you want to call us sleuths that like to solve problems. Uh, it just, it was a really good guide, a template. So thank you for that. Um, thank you. Yeah. And now you had a friend come up called just curious. She was talking, she said there was a comment about retaliation with the doctors. My background is in health insurance administration. And right before I retired last year, I worked for a prescription benefit manager, and I think this is an angle of COVID that a lot of people didn't necessarily know about, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I advise people to go and look up their states, it, within their states, laws that were passed during the pandemic period. We were receiving, I worked in the regulatory aspect of this prescription benefit manager and we were receiving anywhere from 20 to 30 new pieces of uh, regulatory uh, legislative uh, mandates from states that we had to implement on the fly as we were processing and administering prescription drug benefit claims, including the vaccines. Uh, many of these states wrote laws circumventing the doctor-patient relationships and authorized and gave authorities to pharmacists and pharmacies to override doctors and physicians. Um, so if you're interested, that's a path to dig into to understand uh, what your state has either uh, mandated to your physicians or your, your healthcare professionals with regards to prescription drugs, specifically the ivermectin and HCQ angle. Um, the other thing that a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, years ago when I was a kid, uh, most of the doctors were private practice 
and, uh, you know, things were much simpler. But now that we've centralized a lot of our healthcare here in the United States, you know, most of those physicians are now doctors. And those doctors are not only contracted with uh, their, their healthcare conglomerates, but they're contracted with insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid, um, and they are also subject to contra- contractual rules that point to CDC and FDA guidelines. And that pretty much limits a vast majority of the physicians who are now employees versus employers. And so that is another reason why a lot of these doctors will not come forward because their jobs are at risk if they do, and they could be breaking some type of contractual agreement that they've signed with their employer or their employer has signed with an insurance company. So it gets really complex, but I just wanted to throw that out because a lot of people don't know about that side of what happened. And uh, it is. Can I uh, interject real quick and ask you a sure, question? Go ahead. Because um, I've, I've, I've not seen a state that has passed a statute in the COVID era that has limited, hmm. where can I look? Um, what state? Well, I would start with your blue states. Um, uh, I, I, I can, what I'll do, Tracy, for you is I will send you um, some examples um, of some of the, the regulations that were written. Um, yes, please. Yeah. And again, because I was in the industry, I had direct uh, uh, access to this H- HPMS system, which is where a lot of these regulatory alerts or new legislation that the insurance companies or a healthcare payer were subject to. Um, so I had direct access into that. I don't have that access anymore since I retired. <laughs> um, but I, I have friends who are still there. And I can get you some examples. <laughs> I would love that. Um, there's a contact form on the website. If you go to uncoverdc.com slash contact, okay. you can reach out to me directly there. Because if I give my email ad- address out right no. now, it would probably No, I don't want you to do that. But- not be productive yeah. for me after tonight. And um, I think the insurance uh, side of this, uh, uh, the other bill to look at is the CARES Act. Um, that was a massive federal uh, legislation that was uh, implemented, and many pieces of the CARE Act were were engaged during the COVID pandemic, um, which you know put in lots of reporting. I think a lot of people don't know that their insurance companies were sending to states, as well as to Medicare and Medicaid, uh, all payer databases and vaccine data and uh, prescription drug use data during this time. And uh, so not only do the states have it, but uh, Medicare, Medicare, uh, Medicaid uh, systems also have this data. And there were also an increase in the types of reports specific to COVID vaccines. And I think it was uh, they were looking and monitoring uh, the volume of people that were actually adhering. So just just some back, you know, some information from the, the industry uh, that a lot of people don't know. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'll be looking for your email for oh. sure. And <laughs> thank you for your kind words, because that's a big story. That is a, 
that I haven't had any hard data on yet. So I love to and see I that. And I wish someone would pay attention to it because, again, I, I was limited in being able to discuss it because I was employed, right? But I did not, I don't have a non-disclosure you know disclosure agreement or anything like that. And I can tell you things about the industry you wouldn't even want to know, so... Well, I do want to know, and maybe we'll have that conversation. So, right. thank you so much. Thank you. If you're if you're Attorney Robert a speaker, and you want to talk, just put your hand up. So, Michael, you're next. All right, uh, this is a pretty great space. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to touch on uh, what we were mentioning earlier, and the health insurance point is a huge piece of all this, tying back to Obamacare and the back end of his site. Um, but what I do want to touch on is the trusted third party doctrine. Um, which is what they are utilizing to basically bypass our data rights. Um, so these fusion centers that you're mentioning, uh, when when you had the situation with the president of the United States, um, I posted up at the top in the nest uh, two of my threads that I worked on about back in, uh, I think, May. Um, and it's intellectual property tied to Rodney Jaffe. But the, the point of the matter is all of these industries, everything that that the FBI, CIA, every agency, every federal agency that's uh, tied to our government actually sits on a infrastructure that uh, we we don't have control over. So there's a, there's a back end basically uh, loophole to all of our data, um, and that loophole becomes so much more problematic when I tell you the next point, in that our emergency services, when you dial out to nine one one, that's controlled by a foreign Swedish company that in February of 2022 admitted to literally funding, bribing, and sponsoring ISIS for 17 years. So this kind of threw me for a loop when I started looking further into the Durham probe because what Durham did was he circumvented and really put a huge highlight of emphasis on Sussman, who in 2014 was working on behalf of this Numbers Portability Administration Center contract. This is a non-government contract but mind you, every single federal agency, every single police, every single FBI, uh, state, local, all of that has to go through now a foreign Swedish telecommunications company that literally has has admitted to funding and bribing ISIS. So the, the scary part of that is it's not just about the sp- sponsoring, funding, and bribing ISIS part. There's no oversight. So if you want to find out why a 911 call took as long as it did, these are the people you're going to. Um, what's more is this backdoor loophole um, is why the government is trying to cover up all of this because it connects to all of your data and Newstar, the company that Rodney Jaffe actually works for, worked for, um, was just, just before the 2016 election had data leaks and hacks of over 190 million user files. Now, that was pre-2016. In 2018, just before the midterms, they bought the back end uh, of the signature services uh, for a for an online company called Verisign. Now that that allows you to understand how they won 2018. 2020, you have them purchasing literally all of Verisign's security services the day before the U.S. elections. So this all ties back to the internet and. Obama giving it away on January 6th of 2017, but the plan for doing so stems back much further than that. Um, so it's, it sounds really crazy, but I put out a report called the Erickson Report, um, and the reality of this situation is if we do not circumvent and fix this problem with certificate authorities, we will never have another free or fair election 
ever again, period. Um, and that is because we've lost control of the of an inner infrastructure critically. Um, and, and what's crazy is I continue to go, I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm, I'm rambling on a little bit, but uh, it, it ties all back to new star and new level. And new level is what operates the top level domain for China. Um, and so all this dates back to exactly what you guys were mentioning, 9-11. Um, and I've put out a, quite a few fr- threads covering all of this. Uh, the problem is because Ericsson controls all of this, uh, they're able to put us in frequency gates. So they're able to put my IP, um, your IP, any of our IPs um, on a level of censorship that is uh, really kind of unheard of. It makes it so that you're put into this little mini bubble and you can't be heard even if, uh, you know, if, if you look through my threads, a lot of my tweets recently, Laura Logan had just retweeted uh, a bunch of my tweets, but they don't move. Um, it, and so that's what's called a frequency gate. Um, and this company, Ericsson, what's so crazy about this story is basically it holds the data for Hillary's emails, for Barack Obama's foundation, um, his archival emails, um, everything that you can imagine, all is pushed towards this this, this corporation and this company. Um, and, and all the while, our government knew about it. Okay, Michael, I'm going to stop you for a second and ask the guys that would know on this uh, on this space what they think about this and if they've heard of it. Crickets. Anyone? No? Yes? Steve? I I haven't heard of it. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, um, but I'm not familiar with it. But I, I don't want that to think that uh, then I'm dismissing it, not by any means. Okay. Well, Michael, you pinned your thread up there. We'll take a look at that. Appreciate your work and your information. Thank you. I'm going to read through it all later when I'm uh, about we'll go to, to Chris next. Appreciate that. Thank you. Go ahead, Chris. Thank you. Hi, Tracy. Been a while since we've spoken, about five years. Um, I'm glad to see you back. And this group of people are awesome. And I've heard of Michael's report. Um, I just want to propose that maybe – this won't fall under 230, but national security, because of the 2013 NDAA about misinformation and disinformation, and the Smith Modernization Act, and the subsequent uh, uh, steps that were taken after that to harbor um, in each agency misinformation and disinformation units. Um, yeah, I'm going to say it's not 230. I'm going to say national security they're going to use to censor everybody, and that's why it was so easily done. If you throw that out there. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you. Yes, a lot of people, I think I've been thinking I'm going to do a like a thread on the Smith Month because a lot of people don't um, really know what it is. And not only that, it's been a while since I've gone through it, so I need to get myself back in there too. Appreciate I, you. I sent you a tweet that has a less than two minute long video about that. Oh, perfect. Awesome. Appreciate it. I'm not trying to rush people. That's for sure. We've got eight minutes. So um, we're kind of motoring through Chris. Thanks for joining us. Um, Mitt, I guess is next right name. Yeah, go ahead, Mitt. Thanks Tracy for uh, inviting me in. I'll I'll try to go quick. I'm going to give you a street level view of the JTTF and the fusion centers. Um, I ran an orange, I I ran a a task force in my county along with a a few other people that ran their own task force for their particular uh, different 
you know, agencies that, and the things that they had to focus on. And the fusion centers, uh, the street level view of that is the, these fusion centers, the 56 of them around the nation, they're basically to help the FBI gather local information and access to local information. There's just not enough FBI agents to monitor every single thing in every city and every county across the nation. So they have these 56 spread out and they have agencies like mine and, and counties like mine where we funnel stuff into our own intelligent assessment center, which we had, and we'll sort through them like a colander. We'll let it filter through and the viable stuff that's left will forward on up to us. It was in LA, the LA fusion center, and they would take it and they would run with it. Now, the the genesis of this thing was when it started, it was all about uh, radical Islam and the terror threat and everything that went along with that and trying to get anything that local agencies had that we see a lot of stuff out there on the street and we would filter that through. Some of it was credible and some of it panned out. Some of it never panned out. Some of it wasn't credible. But as that focus faded away, especially when uh, Obama came into office and there was a big purge of the radical Islam focus, um, you, the next time you really heard about these fusion centers was through Bill Barr during the 2020 riots when he said, I am going to task the 56 fusion centers with tracking down some of these purveyors of evil during the riots, whether it was Antifa or BLM. And we noticed that that really didn't pan out at the end. And then the next time that you really hear the FBI focusing locally, it's on the poor moms and dads at school board meetings. And how do you think that the FBI is getting local info on people over on Main Street complaining at a school board? It's because they have this well set up for the last over 20 years system of these county agencies and city agencies that are participating in their own intelligent assessment centers, forwarding information to them. And when you get Chris Ray sending out an edict through the DOJ and at their behest that, hey, we're really interested in this, and this is the number one threat to our nation, it gives the county the impetus to go, hey, we just had someone, we went, responded to the school board meeting just this week, and Mary Jane was in there, you know, just really causing a real ruckus. Well, they will take that, put it into the assessment center barrel. They'll sort through it and they'll send it on to the uh, to the fusion center and to the JTTF, and then it makes its way up the chain. That from the real quick, level. real quick before you go on, hold on. Are the do you think the local level folks that are doing this, like on the on the, the at the fusion center, are acting on it because? They're being told by the FBI that there's some sort of a credible threat coming from there or because they want to rat on the moms and dads. At the I don't think meeting. they want to rat on the moms and dads. I think it's an interesting mix of that. I think that, you know, everybody has their own, no matter what you say, you're, you're in a, a position of authority. You do have political feelings and leanings. You do. There's no way to get away from it. But when the director of the FBI and the attorney general send out an edict to your bosses that says we need this info then you're required to pass along that info, right? I mean, Chris Ray said it's the number one threat to the nation. So you get a lot of, um, you get a lot of authority and a lot of pressure from the mayor, from the city council, from the city manager, from the police chief, from the county sheriff, from whoever, and they want that information passed up. 
And that's the system they have set. And it's just amazing the genesis from going from terrorism from the Middle East and these radical Islam facts all the way to the point that the government's ended up using it now that we have it set up just like the FISA warrants and just like the Patriot Act. It was for this, but now it looks like it's actually for something else. Tracy, I, I can right, do man. this in about one minute because I, I see we're just about out of time, but I, I really need to speak back to this having run two fusion centers, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts fusion center and the Boston regional intelligence center. Um, so yes, the focus was on Islam, especially during the height of ISIS. And when ISIS was eradicated under Trump, um, those threats to the homeland largely evaporated. So a lot of what was coming to the federal authorities, the FBI through the fusion center from, from state and local was in, in almost all cases, um, did not rise to the level of, of federal scrutiny. On January 7th, when Timothy Tebalt um, started essentially broadcasting to all the fusion centers uh, and would pontificate for, for sometimes over an hour about the horrors of January 6th, it changed. Um, and, and this could probably be a discussion uh, for an entire evening. So I'm just going to stop right there. That's probably why they keep equating it and saying it's our modern 9-11. I'm just saying. I mean, you know, they get cra- they get very crafty with their language. Um, look, I want to thank every single person who's here. I'm so sorry if we didn't get to you um, in this space. Um, George, thank you. Kyle and Steve, thank you. Name, thank you guys so much. It's been a really enlightening few hours. Um, I hope you guys will come back and join us again the next time we, we spring one of these things up. Um, I'm sure we'll all be in touch again. Appreciate all of your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tracy and uh, Kyle and Steve and George. Thank you very much. Off we go.